What's going on, everybody? My name's Dallas, and this is the podcast where we talk about food in and around Victoria, British Columbia. And today, we're going to be talking food trucks, arancinis, sandwiches, salads, all sorts of stuff. I got Andrew here with me from Indecent Risotto. Andrew, how are you doing? Awesome, Dallas. How are you doing? Dude, I, I'm so excited for this one. Me too. Me the, too. Like, when I, when I think back, one of our first radio segments um, was Meat and Bread. Yes. And, I, and that's where we, where we first met you. Mike and I just randomly stopped in because Mike really liked meat and bread. Yes. And that's where you were at the time. And then you were like, oh, by the way, we've got this food truck starting. <laughs> and that's kind of how it happened too. You know, it was, we kind of fell into the whole food truck business. It wasn't a, initially it wasn't a purposeful goal. Uh, the opportunity presented itself and we were in a position and very fortunate enough to be able to take advantage of that. So uh, here we are four years later. Dude, it, it was cool though, because like, yeah, so you're like, we got this thing starting and Mike and I are like, okay, we'll come check it out. Take a chance. Like we didn't know what we were doing. We're just like, if somebody wanted to talk to us, we're like, we're down. And then we came out, I think the very first day that you were open. Yeah, you were, you guys were our first customers <laughs> ever for Indecent Risotto. I love it, dude. It, yeah, it's so cool. I mean, you know, we've, we've just had a really great relationship over the past four and a half years. And, uh, you know, we feel very fortunate that uh, you guys have been so supportive of us as well. Oh, of course. And I mean, it, over those four years, how long did you have the first truck for? Because you switched to a new truck, right? A second one. Absolutely. So we had the first truck for only about six months. Uh, and then it got hauled back to Vancouver by the original owners um, and ended up at one of the breweries over there. Um, so we already had stuff booked and, um, we ended up getting, uh, a hold of the old pig barbecue truck just in time, uh, literally two weeks away from our first, uh, booked and paid gig. And, uh, here we are wrapping a truck and getting it certified and doing all that kind of stuff. So, but it all worked out, uh, in the end and we've had an amazing run so far. Yeah. I didn't realize. So that was the old pig truck. Yeah. Yeah. That's, when, that's... Uh, when we, uh, when we got it wrapped, we sent pictures to the owner, Jeff, and, uh, he immediately commented back, well, I guess you can put lipstick on a pig. <laughs> and he, he just ran him. He was recently doing some stuff again, right? He was, he was, he actually reached out to me and said, Hey, what do you think about this? And he started doing some, um, of his, uh, famous pulled pork, um, kind of to do up like uh, meal kits. And he said, you know, he was asking about, uh, you know, if there's any kitchen space available and he decided to do it a little closer to home instead of having to come into Victoria every day to do it. Awesome. Yeah. And for people that aren't familiar with you. Yes. Let's, let's like go back and like, let's talk about your history with the industry and with food. Absolutely. So I completed my apprenticeship when I was 19 years old. I was running my first kitchen by the time I was 20. And it wasn't until I completed my apprenticeship that my parents told me that I'm the seventh generation of chefs in my family. Oh, they didn't, they didn't tell you this before. They didn't want to. Did you, did you have any, um, sort of idea that might be the case? Like it ran in your family that deep? Um, I knew about my dad, my grandfather. I didn't know any further back than that. Okay. Um, and then. And where, where was this? This was back in Ontario. I was born and raised uh, just outside of uh, Toronto, basically a little uh, bedroom community, which is no longer a little bedroom community called Milton, Ontario. Okay. It's been swallowed up by the GTA now. And, uh, yeah, when I finished it's like, yeah, it's when my dad told me that it, I kind of wasn't surprised because it came so easily and it just felt like where I belonged. So it's like part, it's like in your DNA. Absolutely. That's Absolutely awesome. It is. Yeah. 
And so how did that, like, how did you first get into it? How did that first start? My very first job, like many people that get started in the industry was doing a dishwashing position. I started when I was 14 years old, um, you know, going to school, living at home, doing all that kind of stuff and wanted some money. So obviously I had to get a job to do that. A uh, different environment back then too, around younger kids working as well. It was a little bit more of a common thing. And, uh, from there, uh, I managed through, uh, connections from my dad, I managed to get an apprenticeship with the Delta hotel group. Uh, I was at the Meadowvale Delta Inn, uh, which is just outside the Toronto international airport. And that was basically trial by fire for about two years. Um, as you know, we're doing 3000 plus covers a day. I got to learn how to do ice carvings. You know, we did a big ice carving of the Jaguar cars hood ornament for their international meeting, those kinds of things. So I got really good exposure to that. Then from there, is that something you still do? I, uh, haven't for a long time, but I, when I was up in Fort St. John, I used to compete in the, uh, high on ice competition, uh, really? which is actually an international competition. There's people from Japan, all over North America, Russia, um, Ido, chef Ido, uh, yeah. formerly of, uh, Aura. of Aura used to, used to go up there. That's where I originally met him. Oh, really? Yeah. And so with that, are you, you're not using like chainsaws or anything crazy, right? You're doing. Oh, oh yeah! Oh, you are doing chainsaws oh, for sure, man. That, oh. <laughs> you use your chainsaws for doing your rough work to 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 get your basic shape set, and then from there you go down to the hand tools and the grinders. Really? So what? What? Like, what's the size on something if you're doing something with that? Uh, it really depends on what your design is going to be. I mean, the each block of ice is about um, a meter, meter and a half somewhere in there to about three quarters of a meter wide. Uh, each block weighs about a hundred pounds. Um, and then you just set your blocks in your basic outline and then you start taking away the big chunks with your chainsaw. And then from there you get a, a we use a power angle grinder, um, and hand chisels, and then you start doing your detail work. And then, so is it open like season? Like you can do whatever you want? Uh, there tends to be a theme for the competitions. Uh, the two years that I competed, one was um, poker cards. So it was a poker tournament kind of concept. Uh, so we did a, a fanned out deck of cards. That was my first real go at competing with it. Uh, and then the second year was uh, Mythical Creatures. Mm. Um, that one, I was actually mentoring a couple of my students. I was teaching the uh, training program at the time. So I mentored a couple of my students and uh, they created a nice, small, fat little baby dragon that was kind of cute. I was thinking Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, but little. <laughs> but little, of course. <laughs> so so you got in, so you did some of that on your way sort of in the industry. Yeah. And how did things progress after that? Um, I was teaching at the college in Dawson Creek, Northern Lights College. I was te teaching the Provincial Cook Training Program. Uh, there was some program cuts uh, due to uh, lower enrollment. The economy was doing really well. And school is kind of, uh, when the economy is doing well, school slows down. When the economy tanks, Everybody wants to go back to school because it's a perfect time to do it. You know, you're either out of work or working at a, at a subsistence kind of job uh, in order to get through the crunch. So a lot of people tend to go back to school. Anyhow, I was reduced down to one day a week. I happened to be in the office with my friend who was the, the program head there. And he got a phone call from a friend of his that he went to high school with here in Victoria. And they were looking for a private chef for the owners of uh, Roundhouse and Bayview Place. He just finished his master's in Aboriginal education. 
um, and had a, his daughter still had a couple of years left in high school and things like that. So he wasn't interested in relocating. I was by myself at the time, nothing kind of holding me in one particular area. So his friend asked him on the phone, is there anybody you recommend? He literally passed the phone to me in the office. And three days later, I was on a flight down here for my working job interview. Really? And that's how I landed on the island nine years and ago. Nine years ago. Yeah. And then, so that obviously panned out, you got that job. Yeah, it worked out really, really well. Uh, I kind of got paid to get to know everybody in the restaurant industry. I got involved with the Island Chefs Collaborative at that time. I got involved with Growing Chefs, all of those programs. That I was going to ask you about those. Yeah, you bet. So I got involved with all of those kinds of things. Um, that job came to an end. It was just a kind of a natural, natural break. They were um, basically relocating themselves back down to Palm Desert on a permanent basis. I had my son, who at the time was... Uh, three, so I wasn't interested in relocating with my son at that time. So I ended up um, helping out uh, the Stradlins reopen the Malhout Chalet. Um, after a six-month stint with them, then I was at uh, Meat and Bread when they opened up. And you were at Meat and Bread. That Was that about three years? Yeah, yeah, just a okay. little bit shy of three years. And uh, in, in that time, that's how we figured out that our next move was going to be food truck. So It seems like you transitioned because Meat and Bread – um, after Indecent Risotto started, Mean Bread slow, like ended pretty soon after that, right? We started Indecent Risotto up in October of 2016. Um, it's by so crazy. It's February been, it's of 2017, Meat and Bread was gone and yeah. we were full-time food truck owners. Yeah. What a transition. And I mean, for me personally, like right now, you, you guys are my favorite food truck in the city. Thank you. So that, that's just for me personally. I will say that if Juma was still around. Yes. Shout out to Aiden. If Juma was still a thing, then he would be he he would be my favorite still. But absolutely, they they produced amazing food. I was we were fortunate to work alongside them a couple of times before they kind of went in a different direction, and uh, their food was absolutely amazing. It, it wasn't, and like, they really understand the whole farm to table and and support local. A hundred percent. Like a lot fantastic. of the stuff came off his parents' farm. Yes, Mike and I got a tour, and we actually there's a video on YouTube that you can see where we went to the farm where where Aiden's family is. And we got to see where a lot of that stuff comes from. Amazing. Which was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, talking about farms, you work with a lot of local farms. We do. We work with uh, our primary farm for our produce is Lowbrunner Community Farm Co-op, uh, which is just off of Luxton Road. There's two farms operating underneath that co-op umbrella. Uh, Vitality Farms, Diana Brubaker and her husband um, provide... I'm going to say 98% of the vegetables on our truck. Um, Ariella, who owns Sweet Acres Farm, which also farms that property. She, at, especially at this time of year, as as crops are changing and, and transitioning to winter crops, she'll fill in some stuff if, if Diana doesn't have it. Um, we've been working for them uh, with them over the last three years. So they grow things specifically for us, like shishito peppers, which I know are a rarity to get here on the island. We've been very fortunate to go through and work with about uh, 25 or almost 30 pounds this year. So, um, And that, that farm is really cool. It is. Because you had that one um, fundraiser dinner yes. for the farm. Yes. Then when was that? That was last summer, actually. Was last summer. Um, that was in July of last year or maybe early August even. That was such a cool event. Like to, to And for people that weren't there... It was basically a fundraiser to get funding for the farm so they could stay there and keep doing what they're doing, which when we were at the dinner, I mean, and you, and we turned around and you look up the hill, you could see development going on 
it's sort of like the, the development's coming. It is. But there's this land here that we need to save and protect because this is really important. Absolutely. So it was really interesting to have such an amazing dinner um, that yourself and another chef uh, worked on. Yes, that was uh, that was Kyle Dempsey, who was the other chef. Uh, amazing work. Again, another chef in the, in the city that truly understands utilizing local and underutilized ingredients, uh, <coughs> uh, byproducts, uh, catch from uh, the shrimp industry tends to be uh, octopus. So those kinds of things were what being were what were being used on the menu. And it was just so it was cool to see that like there's still a push to keep these things that need to be stay that need to stay here. Absolutely. And the support that night was insane. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people were blown away uh, and and people got exposure to the farm that they normally wouldn't get. They got to go out and pick the garnishes and and That's a couple right. of the finishing ingredients for each each of the courses. People were tasked to go and explore the farm and explore the fields and pick exactly what they were going to eat. I mean, you cannot get any more farm to face than that. You can't. You know, you're short of laying down in the in the rows and grazing on the plants right there. Um, it doesn't get any better than that. And that's the kind of relationships that we foster with the people that we work with, um, whether it's Still Meadow Farms or whether it's Oak Bay Seafood. We're always involved in, in levels that go beyond just purchasing their products. That sandwich that you guys have, the um, do you still have it, the, um, the veggie one? It was the zucchini. Zucchini parm. Yes, that yeah. is on our menu. That's that's become almost a permanent fixture. That sandwich, like there's there's so many veggies in it. And to know they're all coming from a chosen. Yes. And and the size of the thing is ridiculous. Yeah, it's huge. It's, it's a two pound sandwich. It's it's such a good deal, <laughs> but it's, it's 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 incredible. The amount of flavor in those veggies is just unheard of. And that's where we feel really fortunate. You know, if you're working with great base ingredients to start with, you don't have to do a whole lot of it for those those products to be able to shine. You know, whether it's it's uh, just a simple light breading on the. <laughs> zucchini parm or whether it's something a little more in depth like we're you know curing hams for a week and smoking them for hours to do our cubano sandwich you know everything we do is scratch made the only thing that we buy in pre-done on that truck is bread but then again you mean you don't have your own bakery well you know i guess <laughs> i do have to sleep sometime of you course. know that's that i out of all baking things i am not a fan of baking and in my career i've tried to avoid it as much as humanly possible um, the one thing I do enjoy about baking is making bread. And if I could figure out a way to extract some more time out of my day, I would love to be able to do it. But that, that's so much effort and so is, much time. It is. And, and we have a network uh, of incredible bakeries that work for us. So Royal Bay Bakery, Crest Bakery downtown is, is one of our main suppliers. Uh, Tom and his crew there, I can't say enough good things about what they do. Um, you know, and it's, uh, it's a matter of, Again, developing those relationships, you know, I met Tom when we were at Meat and Bread. He made all the buns for us there. And that's how I got to know his product and, and his company's work ethic and, and what they were doing. They used to deliver those buns to us every day on a wagon. They used to walk from Fort Street all the way down to the bottom of the block and across and out onto Yates Street to come up to where our restaurant was every day. I love it. Yeah. To be honest, I, I know of Crust, of course, but I've actually never been there. Yeah. It's one of those places where it's like, it doesn't make sense that I haven't been there yet. It's, you know, and there's, for me being in the industry, there's all these amazing places to go and eat and, and explore and get to know the people that are running them and, you know, just never get the time to do it. Uh, and I mean, it's kind of a lame excuse, but that's the reality. 
But we're all really busy. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and with the challenges this year that everybody's facing, I mean, we we do not have any extra staff this year. Uh, myself and my partner Shannon have been doing it 100% by ourselves. So that adds makes up for some very long days. That's I, I can't even I can't believe that you've had no help. It's just been you two. Yeah, you bet. That's insane. Yeah, we normally have anywhere between three to five staff floating in and out at any given time. So yeah, it's definitely been a huge impact on, on us personally, but kind of in a good way too, because we realized, you know, there are a lot of things that we can accomplish in our own time frame, And that we're definitely realized where, when things change so that we can start bringing additional people back on board again, where we're going to utilize those people. So it's, it's been an educational process for sure. Of course. And for people that haven't been to the food truck, it was sort of built on Arancini's. You bet. We got balls, baby. That's what it's all about. So Arancini translates into uh, from Italian into English as to little orange, um, hence the orange color of the food truck. That's that's how that all came to be. Um, we run... Uh, You're making it easy for me. I don't even have to ask you. What, you bet. Yeah, you I bet. love it. You just go. We... We were on four different kinds of arancini. Um, it was really confusing for people at first because it's an unfamiliar term. It's an unf- unfamiliar food uh, for Victoria. And How uh, hard was that education? We kind of made some compromises. We, we no longer call them arancini. We just call them balls. Uh, it made sense with our branding as, as our tagline is we've got balls. So it made sense that we're calling them risotto balls. It's easier for people to understand what it is. Um, we have a friend of our, uh, Shannon's sister-in-law who made us a life-size or a giant oversized model of a dissected arancini so people could see the, where, where the filling would go, where the rice is, the panko on top. And it's actually made with real risotto and it's made with real panko, but it's all been hodgepodge so that it's preserved. Uh, people absolutely love it when they get out. They're like, oh my God, we knew your balls were big, but we didn't think they were that big. It's <laughs> like, yeah, if I tried to cook that, it would take about two days. But um, so you, we've definitely adapted and, and made it so that it's more accessible to people. For us, it was instead of getting hung up on what it's technically called, it was like, okay, this isn't sticking and not working for people. Let's adapt it and change it so that they feel comfortable ordering it. It's made a huge difference in our business. Of course. And uh, so we do, we generally do about four different kinds of balls at any given time. Um, there's a couple of ones that are always on the menu, our four cheese one, which we like to call our introductory ball for people that haven't had them before. But I'm always surprised every time I eat one, I, how good it really is. You know, it always, I was excited about the new flavors that we're developing. And, and Is that and local cheese you're using in that one? It is Canadian cheese. Yeah. Um, we use a, a blend of cheeses. So uh, we just source it can, uh, keep as it best in Canada. You can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but we make our own Arabiata sauce, which uh, uh, in Italian that translates to angry sauce. So we call ours slightly annoyed sauce. We make ours m- much milder than it traditionally is. In fact, it's the one we recommend when people bring kids to the truck um, because it becomes like a giant stuffed cheese ball for them, you know, or a, a cheese stick. 
Because all the arancinis you have, they always pair with the sauce. Absolutely. Absolutely. We create a unique sauce for each ball. The other one that we always have on the menu as a a nod to uh, the vegan and vegetarian communities here in Victoria is our jalapeno popper. So we use the jalapenos off the farm, green onions off the farm, garlic off the farm. And then we support another local business with that one, uh, Cultured Nut. Uh, they make incredible fermented cashew cheese. And we Amazing use stuff. their uh, Optima, which is their version of mozzarella. And we use their Captain Jack, which is their version of pepper jack cheese. Um, those two are, and then we use a fresh pesto uh, that doesn't contain any nuts. We use sunflower seeds instead. We eliminate the cheese out of it and add a little extra greenery into it. Right now, it's a combination of basil, dill, um, parsley, and... A little bit of cilantro, uh, lots of lime juice, uh, the sunflower seeds, some garlic, and that's pretty much it. And as the seasons change, the the greens that go into the pesto change. You know, if uh, cilantro and uh, or sorry, basil is now pretty much finished up for the season, so that will get changed out for something else, maybe winter savory or something else. You know, so we're able to be flexible with the seasons as to what's coming off the farms. As How well. many different balls have you made in total? Do you think like different flavors? Uh, I'm going to say probably close to 40. Um, you know, we've had some ones. Mike that, and I had one. Absolutely. You guys had your own ball, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was the Vic food guys ball. And, and yeah. you gave us a list of ingredients, um, that you wanted to see in there. You wanted to see jalapenos and you wanted to see peanut butter in there. So it's like, okay, we're going Thai with this one, Yeah, you know? Um, and that those are really fun things for us to do. We have had great success doing custom balls for specific events. For example, during this year's BC Cider Week, we were fortunate enough to be out at Sea uh, Cider on the Friday. We uh, took their cider and made um, a roasted chicken and apple ball with a Sea Cider aioli. Um, so we are able to incorporate ingredients and create custom balls, and that's worked really well. People that are organizing events really like that aspect of it because it's something that's unique to that event. When you have an idea... Can you sort of tell ahead of time this is going to work or not work? Like if somebody gives you just a basic idea, you already kind of have an idea. You yeah. know what's going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have, we try and swing for the fences each time we create something new. Um, and I'm going to say probably about 80% of the time we smack it out of the park. Like There's, on the first try? Yeah, you bet. You bet. Uh, and that's just being fortunate enough to have been in this industry for 37 years and and been exposed to some really talented people uh, to form my basis and my training to go from. Um, I've had some amazing mentors and still do have some amazing mentors in this industry that I, I turn to uh, for advice and, and direction if I'm struggling with a concept. And they'll, you know, they'll provide some advice and we incorporate that and away we go. Have you had any flavors you've tried that just didn't pan out? Um, I'm going to say probably the tasso ham ball that we did with, um, braised greens from the farm, incredibly tasting, uh, product from the whole beast. Uh, tasso ham is a very unique, um, su- uh, Southern U S kind of ham. And, uh, the, the, the flavor profile for it wasn't what people were expecting when they were ordering the ball. They said, yeah, it's okay. Okay for us is not good enough. Um, we always realize, of course, we're not going to be perfect in everything that we do, but we want to be better than just okay. 
you know, we want to be, we want to, we want to have a life altering experience. So other than that, like you've just, it's been, it's been crushing every absolutely, other one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether it's a smoked salmon ball with dill creme fresh, whether it's uh, our teriyaki steak ball that we have on right now, which is, I, I don't think we're allowed to take that off the menu. Our customers would just have a revolt. Um, you know, so it's changing up those things and, and finding out what our customers are really responding to. And because we do everything from scratch, we can adapt really quickly. I'm wondering what the process is. Like when you're going to make a ball, what does that whole timeline sort of look like to, to make something? Um, a couple of days. Uh, reality is concept, uh, you know, a bunch of scribbling on a piece of paper, and then it's execute a small batch of the filling because that's where all our flavor comes from. Our risotto that we make is standard for every, every ball that we make. We use exactly the same recipe. So that never changes. It's all about the flavors that we can, that we can jam into the fillings and, uh, yeah, small batch, make sure we get our taste right. And then we ramp it up to the size that we need it for the next day. And then we're rolling it. So when you are making them though, like what's, what's the workflow just of, like, once you have a batch ready, and you you're going to do it. What does that workflow look like? What's the time? So the workflow, um, either one of us, myself or Shannon can, can form and shape uh, about 180 balls an hour. Uh, and then they still need to be breaded after that. Um, so basically the process is the night before the risotto and the filling gets made, the risotto needs to be completely chilled overnight. Uh, the filling obviously needs to be chilled down as well. The filling gets portioned out into a size that's going to fit in the hole in the arancini. Um, and then it's literally a matter of taking the molds that we purchased from Sicily, where arancinis come from, scoop the rice into it, put the lid on it, punch a hole in it, drop the filling down on the inside, cap it with a little bit more rice, flip the plunger over and it has the right shape to finish off the ball. And there you go. We can do about, uh, yeah, like I said, it's only around 180 balls an hour. And that's individually. If we're both hammering on it, we're getting close to 400 balls an hour. That's so crazy. What What's the most you've done in one day, like sold? Most like, we've sold in one day? Or I'm, made. Either I'm going to say sold-wise, we've probably sold uh, 300 plus. That's so crazy. It is crazy. Uh, <laughs> Make-wise, we do uh, nine kilo batches of risotto at time at a time uh and so like the 20 most, pounds yeah the most we've rolled in a day is three batches so you know 27 kilos of risotto oh uh, and that's dry weight before the yeah the water um so yeah it really depends on the volume and and where we are in our season uh earlier and at this time of the year things are a little bit slower but basically from the end of may until the middle of september it's flat out as fast as you can make them and with the features, is it, do you rotate every week with like a feature flavor? Um, sometimes they don't even make it a week. Um, it can be depending on what, again, what events we've got lined up. And if it's a situation where we're doing a custom ball, um, we could be changing two or three flavors in a week. Um, on average, we try to do a new, at least have a new flavor on at least once every two weeks minimum. And do you take suggestions from customers? Of course. Yeah, that's, you know, it's kind of fun. Like I said, you know, the challenge that you guys threw down for us when, when uh, we were going to do that segment is we love that kind of stuff. It's, it's fun. It, it gets the creative juices going and it really feels like the customers really feel like they're involved in the process as well. And that, and that's a key component. 
I mean, so the, the truck was built on Arancini's, but I love your sandwiches. Yes. Like they're so good. And you just retired, I guess, the pork belly one, right? We did. We And the reason for that is, is when you're doing a sandwich that has uh, three ingredients on it, lettuce, tomatoes, and uh, house-cured pork belly, they've all got to be stellar. Uh, and tomato season is coming to an end. So um, the quality of the tomatoes is still good, but it's they're not at their peak anymore. So that's, the, and we've done that for the last three years at, at this time of year, sort of by the middle of September. And what's the new one? It comes new sandwich? We've just started doing a ancho barbecue boneless pork rib sandwich. That, 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 that sounds so good. And the picture looked amazing. Thank you. And have you done that one in the past or is that, is that new to this year? That's a brand new one. That came about working with Village Butcher. They get all their um, pork from Still Meadow Farms. And they always have an excess of side ribs. It's about the least popular cut that comes off a pig. People want the back ribs. People want the belly. They want the shoulders. They want the picnic hams. They want all of those subprimal cuts. But then they have this glut of side ribs, which are unruly. There's lots of cartilage. There's lots of things to deal with. So they custom cut it to spec for me. So they square the, the entire rib up. And then they split it in half lengthwise. That's the perfect size to fit on the bun widthwise. I then take each of those racks and split them in half. And that's how I get my portion size. Um, so it's a five-day brine. It's a three-hour smoke. And then um, it's starting to pick it all apart, sliding the bones out. It's got to be cooked enough that the bones will slide out, but not so cooked that it's going to fall apart. And then, of course, we got some amazing ancho chilies off the farm. So... Of course, we're going to do an ancho barbecue sauce to go with that. Dude, as you're describing this, all I can think about is how much of a treat it is to eat food out of the truck. <laughs> you bet. You, you bet. know, um, and it's just, it's amazing to me that you guys are just like with the, the schedule you guys have, you are so busy and you do such a great job of like updating on the Instagram and on the, uh, the street food app. Well, for me, it, it's been a really steep learning curve. Um, I am not the most technologically, um, what's the word I'm looking for, comfortable or savvy person. Um, so learning how to do all of that really kind of opened my eyes to how important it really is for the existence of our business. Um, if people can't find us or don't know where they are, we're not selling any food. Um, so that's why I'm religiously posting on a daily basis to make sure that people can find us where we're going to be, or they can make plans. We try and put our full schedule out for the week at the beginning of the week while we're still closed and people can make plans. Oh, Hey, we're going to be out near Seaside or next Friday. So let's, let's go there. Or, Oh, I was going to go to the Esquimalt market to see, you know, Red Damsel Farms and get my greens for the week. And now I know I can get an Arancini too. So that's why we feel that that communication piece is so important. And the other thing is, is it opens up the channel of communication to our customers as well. They feel comfortable reaching out to us anytime. Uh, and they know they're going to get a um, prompt reply as well. There's nothing worse than then crack and open one of your social media channels and go, oh, that's been sitting there for a long time. I hate that feeling. And and people don't like to feel ignored. Yeah, uh, no. I know. I mean, we have an, an instant attention span kind of society now anyhow. Um, so being on top of that is, is just critical to the success of our business. Yeah, I wanted to say very amazing job on the way you do all of this. I appreciate it. Thank because you. Because it, it, does, it does make a big difference. Yeah. And it is amazing how now stuff is like immediate attention span. It is. Like you send it a message, 
And like, you almost want like an immediate response or like an hour later, why are they ignore me? Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. Is, did I do something wrong? Yeah. Did, are they, you know, what's going on? You know, people start questioning all kinds of things that they don't need to, but it's just, we expect that response right It's away. crazy how the world is sped up like that. It is. It is. Watched, um, like if I think back about 10 years ago, stuff I used to do or watch and I was cool with just sort of like, let me have a little, I'll just consume it slowly. Yeah. And now it's like, I'm skimming everything at like light speed and I'm missing half of it. I'm like trying to assess, do I need to see the whole thing? Yeah. Or can I get away with a yeah. quick, quick flyby on it? Yeah. It's exactly. so insane. It keeps speeding up and I'm, I'm purposely, I'm trying to slow down. Yes. Cause I like, I, I find it's really important. Like I speak very quickly. So I, I purposely like when I'm doing these, I try to slow myself down like 5% slower than what I would consider slow. Sure. And, and you know, it's until you expose yourself to those kind of situations that you really get a good picture of what's going on for you and, and, and how you're doing those things. So for you, it's slowing down your speaking speed for us. It's that immediate response when people are asking us questions or providing information around, uh, ingredients, uh, and allergies and all of those kinds of things, or responding to requests for food truck house parties or wedding catering or whatever the case may be. I mean, we just wrapped up last week. We did three weddings in a week. That is insane. You know, uh, people people are adapting how many, how many, and adjusting. Uh, people did you serve in those three uh, days? The the biggest one we did was fifty, of course, uh, which of is cap. which is where we would always cap it up. Yeah, uh, and that included us as well. So f- we include ourselves in that number. And okay. if it gets above fifty, we need to start trimming stuff down. Uh, the first one that we actually did, which was out in Souk, was uh, forty three people. The second one was 50. That was up in Duncan. And we just did one on Saturday uh, for 32 people. So great numbers, really fun and interactive. It, it becomes kind of the entertainment for the night because they're not allowed to have all the traditional trappings that go with a wedding experience. So when you do a wedding, are you serving more than just sandwiches or anchinis? It totally depends on what our clients want. We can do custom menus. Uh, the two that we did, the first one was a hybrid. It was kind of a custom menu, kind of food truck food. Uh, the second one was a complete custom menu, and the third one was straight what we had on our menu for that day. So, what's it like when someone comes to you and says, "Here's here's sort of my idea. Can you make something custom? Like, is that something you enjoy?" Absolutely, I love that whole creative side of it, and I love being able to put together and say, "Okay, this is what I have access to for ingredients." Because the first thing we tell them is, all our products are local. So, I'm not if you want strawberries in December, guess what? You're going to have to find somebody else to get them for you. Cause I'm, I can't get them locally. That's perfect. So I'm really, really, um, forthright with people about the low, the, the hyper localness of our, of our business basically. And they seem really excited about it. They, they're really encouraging. Um, they think it's fantastic that we're doing that. Um, and for us, it goes, it's not just to impress people. It never has been to impress people. It's how we do business. It's how we support our communities that we're operating in. And it's how we make sure those people are going to be there next year for us when we need more stuff. A hundred percent. And especially with COVID, that's really important. You bet. You, you can't be going to Amazon for everything and Walmart. No. You got to, you got to, if it means paying a little bit more, it's, it's very important that that happens. Absolutely. Because you have to support the local people. Absolutely. And, and otherwise we are going to have no choice left anymore. You'll, you'll, and then you'll have to go to these bigger exactly. conglomerates. And, and you know, you're getting produce that's been riding around in a truck and in storage for you know a week, two weeks, three weeks. Or you're getting apples that have been in storage for six months or pears that have been storage for three months. Dude, I didn't realize 
when I went to uh, the Farmer Die guys, yeah. have, you, have you met them? Yeah. I, I, I want to do a podcast with them because they're, sure. they're awesome guys. Yeah. For anyone that doesn't know, they actually moved the island here just to farm. It's three friends. So they have these little uh, houses or shacks or cabins on the property and they all have their own little thing to live in and yep. they, they just farm and I love it. They're awesome guys. But I, I bought some of their lettuce, which for me, it might be the best lettuce I've ever had, I think. It was kind of like butter lettuce, but it wasn't. And it stayed good for like a month. I know, right? So that tells you when you're buying something from a, from a grocery store. I didn't know that was possible. That, and it's going bad in three to five days. That tells you how long it's been out of the field for. Uh, we have phenomenal, I mean, we just moved through so much of it. It never gets to hang around. But, um, you know, especially the beginning of the season or this time of the year, you have days that are a little bit more missed than they are hit because it's pouring rain out or, I don't know, it's... Uh, post-apocalypse smoke show out there or whatever the case may be. So maybe we got to sit on stuff for an extra day. There is no difference in the quality of the product. Uh, and we're just so fortunate to be able to have access to that. So we are doing everything in our power to make sure that we all continue to have access to that. And you mentioned the, uh, the, the food truck parties. You bet. That you guys are doing. So that's a new thing to this year. That is in strictly in response to COVID and as a way to help people experience some sense of normality um, and honestly to keep our business afloat as well. Um, again, we, we would never do anything more than 50 people, including staff. Um, ideally, food truck house parties are good around the 20 to 25 people. That's kind of an ideal number because we can get the food out quickly uh, so that everybody's kind of eating at the same time. When you get into numbers above that, you're kind of doing people in batches then, um, which isn't necessarily a bad, bad thing. It depends on the party. But it allows people to connect with the people in their bubble. It allows them to be outside in a safe place, to be socially distanced, it's really funny when you see them setting up, you'll see, you know, there's a group of four chairs here and then 10 feet away, there's another group of six chairs and then another five, six feet away, there's another four chairs there. So people take the social distancing aspect very seriously, especially when it's in a backyard environment. Um, and I, uh, it could very well be just the kind of people that we, we've attracted with, with offering these food truck house parties as well. They want to be able to socialize. They want to be able to see people, but they want to be able to do it safely. And they want to have a good time and they want to be able to eat some good food. We fill that spot perfectly for them. And how many of those things have you done now? Uh, we're a couple of dozen now, uh, oh, wow. including, the, including the weddings. Yeah. Um, they're basically just like a little bit more in depth food truck house parties. Uh, all the weddings that we've done have been, uh, with the exception of one have been at private residences. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, we, we just got an inquiry for another one, uh, coming up in October. Um, we've got, we did a food truck house party draw to, to encourage people to do pick up instead of delivery. Um, we've got one of those to complete for our, our draw winner. They get a, a, a food truck house party for 10 people. Um, the first question that we got asked about that was if I pay more, can I invite more people? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We got you covered up to 10 after that. It's all up to you. Um, and they're super flexible. You know, we, for those, for the food truck house parties, we are strictly offering food truck menu. Uh, it's only for the weddings and things like that, that we would do a custom menu, but, um, people are really digging it and, and, and just really enjoying the whole concept behind it. Would you have been doing that if it wasn't for COVID? 
Do you think? No, no, we wouldn't have. Would that idea have ever come up? No, it wouldn't have. And until it wasn't until kind of the second week in March when our entire calendar, I kid you not, on the 13th of March, we had six days, six individual days left to fill for our entire season till December 15th. Within one week, our entire calendar was wiped out. No bookings. So from only six days left to book for the entire year to zero bookings for the entire year in a week. I hated looking at my phone that week. I can't believe what that must have felt like. It was terrifying. It was, uh, you know, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to, what are we going to do to stay afloat? So, uh, you know, just kind of reached out to my mentors and and people in the Vic Hospitality Group just to kind of see what everybody's doing because we're all in the same boat. And shout out to that group on Facebook. Absolutely. Because Mo does an amazing job getting that running or keeping yes. it running and, and uh, everyone involved with that. that. The fact that that group exists to me with like 4,500 members and they're yeah. all in the hospitality industry. Yeah. It, it seems so crazy that it exists and it's awesome that it's there. It's It's been a powerful, powerful resource for a lot of people. It's been a great venting board because it is a private group. So, you know, you can... You can go off about that customer that sent you over the edge that day or, you know, have fun with what was the craziest food allergy you've ever had a request for and tons of really solid information. And people asking for help though, and yeah. everyone willing to sort of do what they can to help people in need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, when all the confusing information first started rolling out about COVID-19, the Vic Hospitality Group was really adamant about only using CDC and, and um, provincial health information. There was no nonsense allowed. Um, so people had a good base information to work with. Where they weren't just shooting in the dark and doing stuff randomly. We were ahead of the curve as far as implementing um, the changes to our businesses. And, you know, that kind of thinking and conversation is what led us to doing coming up with Food Talk House Parties. And since COVID's happened, I mean, how how did that sort of unravel after that first week where you got gut punched? Yeah. And like and the wind was taken out. How did it evolve after that for you guys? So it became a mad scramble to get hooked up with delivery companies, get some different concepts out there around, you know, the initial kind of first blush around the food truck house, par- house parties, um, just to keep our name out there and to keep our heads above water. I mean, our food truck provides the entire source of income for this family of four. So when that's threatened that desperately, you get really creative in, okay, how are we going to start moving products so that we can, you know, keep a roof over our head and and keep food on our table. And that's where a real entrepreneur shines. You bet, you bet. So people either will fold up in that kind of situation and kind of curl up in a ball in the corner, or they're going to boldly walk forward, even though they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. You see the success with with places like Village. You see the the success that we've had this summer. I mean, we we've had such an incredible summer. When this all first happened, I was I would have been thrilled if we'd only made five percent of what we made last year. We're looking at we're going to hit about seventy percent of what we did last year. Wow! So I'm just so thrilled and so proud that we were able to accomplish that. Um, basically, flying by the seat of our pants at the beginning, but getting it out there and just trying whatever we could do to make sure that we we're going to survive. It seems to me that this year, like you're in a lot of, you're in more locations than you were last year. Is that right? Definitely, definitely. Um, 
some newer locations for sure. Yeah. Um, I, we're always in a pretty much in a different location every day. Um, but new, lots of new opportunities have opened up, you know, the city of Colwood opened up, uh, food trucks down on the lagoon there on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. Was Whereas, that a response to COVID? Uh, yes, yes, okay. it was. Um, Royal beach came online just at the right time when, uh, the restrictions were being relaxed a little bit and people were being encouraged to get outside and enjoy the outdoors. Uh, another great, amazing opportunity, uh, and development that's happening out here in the West shore. Um, things like Seasiders Food Truck Fridays, those all came in response to what can we do to help each other get through this, this craziness. Uh, and that's how it, that's how it all came to be. And you sow the seeds a long time ago. Uh, it's not, I'm going to sow the seeds today and I'm going to reap the benefits tomorrow. I sowed the seeds three years ago and we're seeing those benefits today. And I think it's important though, when you, when you are planting those seeds to not be trying to ask for things. No. Like you're saying right off the bat, just do stuff just to work with people, try Absolutely. and make relationships. Don't ask for anything. Yep. Just help people if it's possible. Absolutely. If there's things that we can do to impact local families, if there's things that we can do to keep food on a local farmer or producer's table, if there's things that we can do to help a new startup food truck get going, um, we're available for that. We, I will always make the time to help those people out. I don't expect anything in return. I just know that I had to figure a lot of stuff out on my own. Isn't it crazy how I think a lot of people do expect things when they do stuff for someone? Yeah. I it, feel like the majority, and I, and I don't I have nothing to base that on. It just feels because like for me, sometimes I get this thing in my head, some type of expectation where I have to, I have to check myself right. and be like, what are you doing? Yeah. Get rid of that. Like the, the, when you give, I, I really truly believe um, you know, in true Gary V fashion that you need to give and not ask for anything in return. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, for us, that looks, um, different in, in a few ways. Um, we have been longtime supporters and proponents of the growing chefs program. Um, I was about to get to the, to these, whether yeah. it's, whether it's, uh, Super. running a classroom, uh, teaching kids how to grow a windowsill garden and grow their own produce, or whether it's overseeing the program, which is what I did for the last five years, uh, and basically grew it here from scratch in Victoria from a successful program in Vancouver. Um, so you would go into like a class of kids, right? Yeah. And you would start the whole process of growing some veggies. Yes. That's the very first lesson that we do with them. So we do, the program is designed to operate over seven lessons from after spring break until Basically, and just before school the kids? gets out, um, there's two levels of the program. One's designed for grade one, grade one to grade three, and the other one's designed for grade four to grade six. So, primary and intermediate programs. And then you would you would grow veggies, and then you would make something with it at the end. Right? Absolutely. So, not only are we teaching them how to grow their own food, we're teaching them how to cook what they've grown. Um, that's that is so unbelievable. It's such a powerful thing that changes families' lives, not just the individual kids, but those kids then go back to their families and say. I learned how to do this. I learned how to do that. We need to grow tomatoes in our backyard. We need to grow peas in our backyard. I challenged the kids every time I was in a classroom. I want you to try something new out of the vegetable or produce department that you've never tried before this week. And I want you to tell me about it next week. Was it gross and disgusting and nasty and you're never going to eat it again? Or did you find a new favorite? You know? And how often did you get someone saying this is the, a new favorite? Well, 
in our very first year in our very first classroom, which was Vic West Elementary with a wonderful teacher called Pat Carrico, um, she grabbed a hold of this program and has been a, just a huge supporter. We had one little guy that basically did not eat vegetables, period. He became our, by the end of the seven lessons, he was our biggest champion in that whole entire school about telling kids about eating fresh vegetables and trying new things and growing, planting seeds and growing their own vegetables. And this is a kid that wouldn't even look at a piece of lettuce in the first class. That's absolutely, that's, I mean, you're changing lives with this. It basically is what's going on and you're setting someone up. Like nutrition is so important. It is. And like, I know for me, I, like, I, I was like that. I wouldn't eat any veggies. And now as I'm getting older, I'm like, oh, I actually feel kind of good when I eat vegetables. For sure. For sure. You know, and and it's amazing how you can change kids' perspective when they actually get to get their hands in the dirt. They get to plant that seed. They get to water that seed. They get to put a stake in it. If it's a pea plant, they need something to grow on. Uh, And then they get to harvest what they've grown. They're proud. They're enthusiastic. They're driven to do more with what they've got you know we we think we 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 live in this amazing country and we're so well supported by our communities and and our governments and all those kinds of things but there's still schools like vic west elementary that are basically in food deserts there's no local food around there they have a they now have a community garden going that all started after the growing chefs program was in their neighborhood um so we're we're changing neighborhoods, we're changing communities. Um, it's an amazing program that, uh, unfortunately, due to COVID, has been put on pause um, because uh, people are not allowed into classrooms right now. Of course. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Growing Chefs evolves too. You know, um, is there ideas for that? Already? Absolutely. So they're doing they're they're figuring out ways to do lunch programs with schools. Um, where individual restaurants and chefs can get involved um, with a very small cohort of students, everybody responsibly distanced, and then that that food goes out to the entire school for that lunch hour. So it's even more of a broad impact. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it requires a little bit less of a time commitment for the chefs and the volunteers, which is always a good thing. And it gets the kids exposed again Maybe they're not growing food, but they're still got their hands on. They're learning how to handle a knife safely. They're learning how to prep food properly and safely, me, and they're learning all those things. Let me say that I just got a new knife recently. I've used it once, and I, I cut my hand twice. And one of them was like, it wasn't just a little nick. Like, I, I went into my finger, yep. and I was like, oh, no. This is bad. I just, yeah. I just, I just sort of stood there and looked at it and waited for it to start bleeding to see how big of a cut it was. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah. that's the beautiful thing about sharp knives is you don't get that nasty ragged cut. No, um, it was clean, but it was it's deep, super clean. But they get deep really quick for sure. <laughs> absolutely, you know. And having kids have that confidence and and that understanding around knives are not scary things. They're they're a valuable tool that need to be treated with respect. You need to know how to handle yourself when you have one in your hand. You need to know how to wash it properly and care for it properly. And you need to know and be confident in how you're using it. I don't believe in getting kids cooking tools. Teach them how to use a real knife properly. Far safer. It's something that they're going to grow into as they become young adults. It's something that they're just naturally going to be comfortable with. Um, so being a part of that whole program 
again, just ties back into the principles that we have. How can we help our communities? We just uh, fed the HeroWorks volunteers. HeroWorks is an amazing um, outfit that does radical renovations. So they're just currently wrapping up their renovation on the Kiwanis Family House on Cook Street, um, where the Wise Young Mums program runs. So these are, are ladies and kids that need to get out of a bad situation. These volunteers go in and totally redo the whole entire facility and add in new rooms and add in a playground for the kids. And it's all run by volunteers. It's all donated time and product as much as humanly possible. Again, things look different because of COVID. Normally we, we feed a whole bunch of volunteers. There could be, you know, 50, 60, 70 volunteers on a site at any given time outside of COVID time. Well, now they're, you know, 12 to 20 volunteers. So they weren't getting lunches done. We're like, no, we're coming to feed you guys. You're doing an amazing thing. It takes a community to rebuild a community. And these people understand it. And so we're, we love doing stuff like that. We actually were fortunate enough to feed them, feed them twice this year. Uh, the first time we fed them, uh, Jal Properties picked up the tab because some of their staff and uh, one of the Jal family were actually on site uh, helping out with the renovation, you know, so it takes people from all walks of life. And again, this is something that we do because we want to, it's not a have to kind of thing. There's no money in it for us. There's no driving factor other than that. We need to be good citizens in our communities. We need to take care of the people that are taking care of everybody else. Right. So that's always been our philosophy with our, with our company. And uh, that's what I love about you. Because every single conversation, like we've had conversations in the past that were like four hours, yeah, where we're just talking about stuff, and it just, I, I really appreciate like the basis that you operate from. Thank you, you and Shannon. Yeah, like it, it just, it, it's such a, it's a place of, uh, it's just genuine. It's really funny, you know, if you ask Shannon, she, what's her favorite times on the food truck? It's when we're feeding the Hero Works volunteers, or when we have the food truck at one of the schools to do a fundraiser for growing chefs. Those are our favorite times on the truck. It's not about the money. It's about the smiles on people's faces, the connection to the community, bringing people together. That's what it's all about. I do want to say too that, like, doing this podcast, it takes it takes a lot of effort, um, and I have received some really nice messages recently. Good. And like, like for me, like at times when I'm doing the editing on these things, it gets a little bit um, monotonous, and I don't want to do it. Sure. But like when, when, when you see in your case, I guess you're, you're, re, you're actually seeing the people that you're impacting. That's right. And for me, it's, it's receiving a message from someone that, that, that really appreciates these episodes and what they're learning. Like it's, it's, it just, it, it means a lot. And I, and I, I just want to thank everyone that's listened to any of these episodes. Fantastic. It's that, it's that gratitude, right? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. It, it's, it's that concept of, uh, no matter how little we can make changes, we can, we can help people. We can provide what they need, even if it's in a minuscule way, like just providing some information people to 100%. people. 100%. Or whether it's something as in-depth as setting up and organizing a whole new program to help kids learn about food. Um, there's all different roles that all of us can play. We just need to kind of get out of our own heads sometimes and look around us to see what's going on. And what, what is, if there's a hole somewhere yeah. that you could sort of maybe just fill in and do something there. Cause there's a hole and that there's an opportunity to, to hopefully, um, positively impact other people. Absolutely. And it's really interesting. You know, you, like I said, I've talked about sowing those seeds before 
it becomes really natural when a new food truck starts up. They're always sent our direction. I know. I was going to ask. So like, what's the food truck community like with everyone? It's very dynamic. It is certainly a ragtag group of individuals that uh, all bring some amazing things to the table. Um, there's a, there's quite a big variety of food trucks in Victoria. I think we're sitting at around 30. Um, you know, and we have everything from basic, simple, almost bar food to almost higher end. Like you, you talk about trucks like Juma or, um, you know, that are hyper local trucks like us that are, uh, that are utilizing hyper local products and everything in between. The interesting thing about food trucks is that you can be very specific in this market. You can, it, we could survive on our food truck, just selling balls. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the cool things about it. You don't have to carry a massive menu and a huge inventory and all of those kinds of things, but the food truck community is, I'm going to say it's a love hate relationship. Um, there's certainly a, a, a group of individuals that are willing to share. I can't say enough thanks to uh, Carrie Hill from Deadbeats. When we first started out and I had all those questions of the of the newbie food truck owner, she was the one that I was directed to. Um, she very graciously provided me with some fantastic information. Uh, and, you know, we've had that friendship ever since. I love the Beatrice Burger. Yes. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> and they're, you know, doing some really cool different stuff at the at their brick and mortar. I still haven't been to the shop in Oak Bay. It's, uh, it's a funky little spot, you know, and, and good for them, you know. We have absolutely no interest in moving into brick and mortar, especially given the current circumstances. Um, but... That's the beautiful thing about this, especially the food truck part of the industry, is that you can develop it into whatever you want. If you want to ultimately end up at a brick and mortar, great. It will get you there. If you want to end up diversifying into focusing just on film catering, it will get you there. You know, it really opens it up at a at a fairly reasonable cost for people to start making some serious progress to their end, end goals. And so do you kind of have like an end goal in your mind for what you'd like to do? Um, I would like to see one more truck. Um, I think there's a a market or a a part of our market that is being massively underserviced and that's our vegetarian and vegan friends. Um, There are some such amazing things being done with vegan food these days. Um, People have kind of got past the well, I need to make it look like a burger or I need to make it look, how about let's just feature the vegetables. Let's not try to make it look like anything other than what it is. You know, if I want to eat a burger for me personally, I'm going to eat a burger. I'm not going to eat a something that looks like a burger. Right. But I would just as happily order a stuffed portobello mushroom. That's got some of the uh, cultured nuts, uh, pepper jack cheese in it, some fresh spinach off the farm, some onion jam, and away you go. Amazing burger, you know, uh, but it's not trying to imitate anything else. Yeah, no, and and I've had some, uh, it's amazing, like some of my friends, um, I forget what her dietary restrictions are, but it, it is pretty limited with what she can eat. But uh, my friends, they they make the most insane food. Yeah. And I had this, so like there was one thing, it was pizza and the crust was made out of cassava root. Cool. And like, it was gluten-free. It was just, it was, I couldn't believe that this pizza crust was so good. And it was like, it was cassava root. It's, you know, and there's, it's just kind of beginning. 
for people really starting to push the boundaries on what we can do with, with vegetable based foods, you know, uh, cauliflower crust pizza was all the rage two cauliflower years ago. Cauliflower seems to be like an insane thing that you can do so much with. It is. It is. It's a, it's a really neutral base. Um, and you can, everything from big chunks of it to, you know, grilled like a steak to ground up to almost flour like consistency to make pizza dough. Um, I love cauliflower rice as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Shanna makes a, an incredible one and both of our kids eat bowls full of it, you know, um, and they're perfectly happy to do so, you know, so I would like to see, I would like to, I would like the opportunity, um, to have another truck that caters much more towards, uh, vegan. It would be, it would be a vegan truck basically. Um, I just think that that's the way eating is going in general, whether we're going to all, all, you know, one day convert over to entirely plant-based diets. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I will be one of the last holdouts for sure. That's still eating pork and beef. I love it way too much, but I invest the time to get to know my farmers that are producing that for me. Right. I know that those animals are happy and healthy. I know that they're being treated well. I know they're not being shipped off to big feedlots to be finished. So that for us would be, would be a great, great direction to go in. Um, and just kind of expanding on the food truck house party concept. I really think that that's something that's, you know, in the long run for us is going to become a, a larger and larger percentage of what we do. Um, to be able to offer those kind of unique experiences. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and we're very fortunate to know so many people in this amazing industry that we belong to that we, if we need a bartender for that event, or we need some ice cream for dessert, we have the connections to all those people to be able to offer all of those things. And I think it is exciting for the people that I've talked to where, where like you, let's, let's say you went to someone for ice cream yeah. and you're like, Hey, can you make this one flavor for this one event? You bet. And then it's like, it's one of those cool things where now they get to try something new. Yeah. They have a reason to do it. Exactly. So now here's an excuse to go wild. Exactly. And that's what a great feeling it is for us to be able to provide people with those opportunities, you know? And ultimately at the end of the day, it's our customers that benefit from all of that. They're the ones that are getting these amazing products that nobody else has got. You talked about that event that we did out at the farm. That beer was produced specifically for us by Spinnakers, and only the people at that party ever got to drink it. It's never been made again. And that was the one keg of it. And what was the what was the beer again? That I forgot one, about that. That one was made with blueberries off the farm. It was um it was a wheat ale that was made with uh, um I forget how many pounds of blueberries they ended up using. I think in that one keg there was like 15 or 20 pounds of blueberries added as to the, to the final ferment. And, uh, that is the only place that that beer will ever have been and ever will be. I'm glad to say I got to try it. You betcha. You betcha. <laughs> that was, that was an, uh, a, a bad tapping experience and the keg didn't have enough time to really sit. And I ended up wearing a lot of it when I pounded the, the tap. Into That's right. I forgot it. about that. Yeah. I was soaked from the, did somebody get that on video? Uh, I'm not sure if it's on video, but there's definitely photographic evidence. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. You know, so that's, that's for us, that's a big, another big driving factor behind what we do. Being able to collaborate with all the amazingly talented people we're fortunate enough to know, um, lifts us all up. You know, uh, there's a whole bunch of sayings around, you know, high tides lift all boats and all of those kinds of things. In our industry, it can't be any more true. If we're all doing well, we're all doing really well. Oh, a million percent. If we're not doing so well, 
we're all not doing so well. That mindset of like silo mentality where it's like a competition. Yeah. That that's such, it's just like such a cancerous mindset. It is. That it, it really, I, I don't, I don't know if it stems from insecurity or, or where it stems from, but really when people work together, it, it's just, you are so much further ahead all around for everyone. Absolutely. That and, it is not even funny. And those are the things that stay in, in customers' minds. It's like, oh, well, they worked with so-and-so to create this for me. What an amazing and incredible thing. Oh, these three companies work together to produce this amazing product or this amazing experience. And it makes you realize that you don't have to do it all yourself either. Isn't that kind of like freeing in a way? It's so freeing. I mean, I know how to make ice cream. But if there's somebody that's already doing it incredibly well using local ingredients with unique flavors and a killer product, why wouldn't I just use those people? Of course. It supports their business. It gives them a creative opportunity and it gives our clients what we want. And I have less stress, kind of a win-win all the way around. You do, you know? think, do you think it's ego that gets in the way? Part of it. And I think part of it is probably fear uh, of well, what if that person's better than me? What if this so impacts ego. my, it, it definitely all stems from ego, but I, I think historically a lot of it's been fear-based. Well, if there's 30 restaurants in this one kilometer strip of the highway, we're all, not all of us could be busy where if there's only 10 of us, we could all be busy. Well, what they fail to realize is now you've got 30, it becomes a destination place. So people aren't just driving by on the highway thinking, oh, I'm going to stop. They're actually setting out on purpose to go to that location. Because there's going to be something for everyone in their party if they have like you their bet. family or something with you them. You bet. Yeah. So that's when you get a whole, like when you see a whole bunch of food trucks together at, at our bigger events that we uh, did, you know, over the, over the past years, that's why people really love it so much. Have you ever been to Portland? Um, I have not. It I, is, I haven't done the food truck, like little areas they have. so high. There are pods there. I mean, I've done a lot of research on it because I think that um, down the road, that's something that Victoria Langford Callaway, anywhere in the CRD, really needs to start seriously looking at because people are drawn to that kind of stuff like, you know, like magnets to steel. They love the experience it's especially now they're outdoors they're you know they're not confined in a space they they can okay i'm gonna go order from this truck you can order from that truck you can order from that truck and we're all happy i guess the closest thing we have to that is is behind the museum or was right yeah absolutely yeah and, I, and you know even even right now they're facing challenging times too just because there isn't the volume of people in the city mm-hmm. so that's where people in victoria are in the crd on Vancouver Island need to step up and support their local companies. You know, we, we touched on that before. If we all keep buying from Amazon pretty soon, there's not going to be anything left, but Amazon, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to vilify one company specifically, but it's just, it's, it's a uh, generalization that can be applied to our industry as well. Of course. You know, and one, um, one cool thing I do like is what Jonathan's doing down in Cook Street village Yes, at the Cook Street village little, um, I don't know what that area is called. But the fact now he's got his truck, which is the Good Morning uh, Food People. Yep. I think it's Good Morning Food People. It is. Okay. Because I always, I still mess that name up. Um, but I love what they do. The uh, the acai bowls yes. that they have are yep. so good. Yep. And the milkshakes, actually, I love milkshakes. And they every time I see the truck, they always have a different one. Yes. Those milkshakes crush. But he's got that space now where they have like brew bike in there and they have some other people. And um, I just love that that space is being utilized. 
And that's, that's where Victoria really has a chance to shine because we have a lot of those unique pockets in lots of different neighborhoods, right? It doesn't have to be all, it doesn't have to be on a massive scale. If you can have two or three food trucks, carts, whatever, offering unique products, that is enough of a draw for people to seek it out and it becomes a destination place. Yeah, I, I would say too, if people are looking for a dessert after you go to the Good Morning Food People company, go to the Hot and Cold Cafe yes. and get the um, the chocolate mint cookie. Nice. Have you had that thing? I have. It's wicked. It's life-changing for me. <laughs> it is. Like I, I, my, my favorite ice cream is chocolate chip mint ice cream. Okay. Like I need the chips in there. Yep. But there's, uh, so I don't normally like it when it's just mint and chocolate flavoring, but something about that cookie, the doughiness of it and just everything. Like it's got it's the just, nice crispy outside and soft and chewy in the, the middle. middle. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's perfect. It's, it's a well-made product. Absolutely. I, and actually they have really good yellow curry at the hot and cold as well. Nice. And I yeah. haven't tried that there. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's really, that's really good stuff. Um, There's just so many talented people and, and, and talented uh, companies that are, that are doing incredible food. You know, I, I had my first kick at farm to table when I lived in Saskatoon in the mid nineties. How long, how long were you living there for? Uh, I was there for nine years altogether. Oh, wow. Yeah. I Cause moved. I know that, uh, Brendan from Harvest Road, that's where he's from. Yep. And, uh, when I was doing my road trip with my brother last year, he sent me a bunch of stuff, like a bunch of places. Oh, you got to go to all these places. Yes. And I was, I barely had any time in the city, so I couldn't go, but it sounds like Saskatoon has a really good culinary scene. They do have a very good culinary scene. Uh, it was just when I left, which would have been in 99, um, it was really starting to come to the forefront. They'd revitalized downtown and there's lots of cool spaces for people to operate in. Uh, and again, Saskatoon is a frightening no for people that haven't been there. It's such a beautiful city. Uh, there's a river that I was going to say dissects the middle of right through the middle of the city. That's what stood there's out for bridges me. Bridges everywhere. Um, tons of walking paths and trails and all this stuff going on. You know, it's a vibrant city. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I had my first go at my, my first restaurant there. I absolutely lost my shirt. I was trying to do farm to table before it was a thing and people weren't understanding it. I don't know how Spinnakers did it back in the eighties. Like I they know. were so long ago at doing it. Yeah. And, and like, it seems like when any, whenever anybody else tried it, it didn't work, but Spinnakers was doing it since they've been doing it since the eighties. That's right. And, they, and they've just stuck with it. They've worked really hard to promote the people that they're working with. So the, the producers and growers and um, they work really hard to, get exactly what they need from the people that are producing for them. Um, and then they share that love, you know, they're always talking about, you know, this farm and that producer and, and all of those kinds of things. And the other thing that Spinnaker's really understood is giving back to the community. That is that key other piece that some restaurateurs just don't get. You can't just keep sucking money out of your community and expect to survive a long time. You need to, you need to be that, that restaurant that shows up when a ball team needs a sponsorship. You need to be that restaurant that shows up when um, there's a crisis and, and, you know, people need food and shelter. You need to be that restaurant that steps up when there's a new business and, and they're looking for advice, you know, because they put all their hopes and dreams and all their money into their version of what they want the restaurant industry to be for them. Who are we to rate on that parade? 
we're the ones that need to say, hey, you know what? I've been doing this for a long time. I certainly don't have all the answers and I'll be the first one to say, I don't know. But at the same time, I do have a lot of knowledge that I can share. I like the fact you say that though, being able to say, I don't know. It's okay. It, it's, it is okay. And I think, again, I'm going to generalize my, my feeling and I have nothing to base this, base this on, but I, I feel like a lot of people don't like saying that. And it, I, it, I think people see it as a sign of weakness. Yeah. Uh, again, goes back to our, our uh, ever powerful egos. Um, we don't want to be seen as the person that doesn't know something. And I learned a very long time ago that it's way better to say you don't know and then go figure it out and then get back to that person with some information if that's what you've been tasked to do <coughs> rather than be the person that tries to kind of fake their way through it. Because people can see that from a mile away. A hundred percent. I actually really enjoy now saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like instead of if I made some stuff up and then I, I maybe don't look great because I just made something up or now I take something on that I don't know. Like just to be able to like sort of just let all that go yeah. and not have to take any of that on. That's right. And just be like, you know what? I don't know. Let me see if I can find somebody or I'll get back to you. Yeah, exactly. It's a great thing. If I don't know, I probably know somebody who does. Yeah. You know, or I can point you in the direction where you can find that kind of information. Um, and I And I think that we're all human beings. We all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses. We all have things that we love about ourselves. We all have things that we don't like so much about ourselves. That's the human condition, right? Uh, accept that, embrace it, be okay with what you do know and be okay with what you don't know. Million percent. Be okay that you don't have all the answers. It's like you could make ice cream. Sure. But when there's, when there's people out there, in that the city, there's, it. there's so many places yeah. and which I, I, I do want to say shout out to Dan at 49 below, because I am going to be having him on an episode upcoming here. Awesome. That's going to be exciting one. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, but there's so many people just doing amazing stuff in the city that why wouldn't you leverage those people? We're all, we all have expertise in specific areas. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's the food industry for you. It's technology and, and you've discovered a new skill set in your interviewing skills and, and all of those kinds of things that you're just absolutely killing it at, you know, Thank you. did you, did you think 10 years ago that this is where you'd be sitting right now? Dude, to be honest, like it, it's crazy when I think about all the things that led to this happening. Yeah. Like it, it, it was Mike was, he's the one, he's the reason why Vic food guys started. Um, his intention was for me to do it by myself, yep. but I'd said, no, you do it with me. So we did that. We hit a, a, a follower milestone and then Joe reached out to us. Yep. That led to the radio. Then we did the TV thing. And then when all that stopped, like I, I, I just enjoyed it so much in connecting with people. Yeah. Like I come from a base of being a hardcore introvert. Right. If, if I didn't like, let's say I was going to go and do something one night, I would need like two days alone to recover. Gotcha. Um, and so now like I'm, I'm just busy all the time and, and there's something about it that feeds my soul. Yes. Especially meeting new people and, and, um, cultivating relationships and just getting to know people and trying to make an impact as best I can. It, it's all the, all the factors that have led to this, me sitting here right now talking to you Yeah, and like having this amazing chat. Exactly. It, you it's know, so insane to me. It's amazing what we can accomplish when we push ourselves outside of our comfort zones. You know, it's so cliche. Get out of your comfort zone if you want to learn anything. Get out of your comfort zone if you want to, you know, become more successful. It's the only place that we learn. If we stay in our comfort zones, we're stagnant because we are doing what we already know how to do. 
I used to eat at, I think about maybe five restaurants, like let's say seven years ago, five different restaurants. And I would have one thing at each restaurant. Right. And, and I would not go to any new places. I would not try anything else on the menu at those places. Yeah. And, and my, my friends used to like get really upset with me because they're like, try something else. And like, I would just dig in the sand harder. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, like, exactly. I'm like, I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to. I know I like this. Yes. I'm not going to venture out. And uh, yeah, I mean, from. And now from, here you are hundreds of restaurants later and food reviews and interviews and all of those things. And what an amazing ride it's been, I'm sure. Oh, it's been insane. Yeah. Like the, 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 just the um, experiences and people I've met, like I'm such a, a better person for having met all the people I have and being able to, just to get, to gain more information because when I meet everybody, I'll, I'll maybe see, oh, this person does something this way. Right. I like the way they do that. Yeah. I'm going to start incorporating that into what I do. Absolutely. And just, just keep like leveling up. You know, and it's, it is that, I think you really hit on a key component that is critical for ongoing success in our industry right now. And it's that seeing that ability in people and seeing that ability in yourself, Right we're all we're all so focused especially as as cooks and chefs we're also focused on food it's all about the food but when you're working in a team if you if you ignore that team and ignore the assets that you have available to you you won't realize the success that you're looking for you know it can't be a one person show anymore um and it, again, it comes back to doing that a little bit of self-inventory as well. It's like, okay, I'm really good at doing these things and I really suck at doing these things. So I'm either going to learn how to do these things or I'm going to take an assessment of my team and figure out who is good at that because I don't want anything to do with it, right? And it's giving that recognition and giving those opportunities even just to your own staff mm-hmm. to be able to take on new and challenging roles and areas where they can flex their expertise and, and they can become a leader in that, that segment of your industry, of your business and of, of the industry. And, uh, that's one of those things that's always kept me so interested in, in, you know, my career, there's always stuff to learn. If you, if you have, you know, one meter measuring stick and that represents everything you can know in the food industry, I probably know the first 10 centimeters. And that's on a good day. I have so much more to learn. And, you know, it, anytime you can, especially in, in our, our age of instant in, in gratification and information, it's all out there to be discovered. You just need to focus on what it is. Otherwise, you end up just chasing yourself down rabbit holes. Yeah. You know, and you need that. So you need that overarching kind of game plan or concept of what it is that you're looking to learn and achieve. And then you just start filling in the pieces, you know, and, and utilizing the people that are around you. I was going to say leveraging the people that, you know, yeah. that you can recognize that, oh, this person don't know this. Yeah. I don't, I'm not as proficient with it. Maybe I can ask them because for example, like something you would just maybe think about is somebody that I knew, um, they would cut, uh, um, peppers a certain way. Right. I was watching when they were, when they were, um, making food and I'm like, well, that's way better than the way I do it. Yep. And now I cut peppers that same way because it's just, for me, it's almost more satisfying, but it's just like, it's so much more efficient Yeah, and it, the, the results are way better. This is an example. I was helping out a friend of mine. Uh, I, I mean, this goes back some years, but uh, using a commercial food processor. So I finished doing what I need to do and I'm in there with my spatula and I'm scraping the bowl and doing all that. And he's like, put the lid back on, 
pulse it a couple of times, take the blade out, all the stuff is now out off the blade. Right? Just little stuff that because you've done it this way for so long, you don't even see it. And that's what's so cool about this. And it doesn't matter. It could be somebody that's just starting in their career, or it could be somebody that's been at it for you know longer than I have, and there's always stuff to learn. But if you don't take the time to invest in your in your staff and invest in the people that are around you as part of your mentor group, as part of your friendship group, if you don't invest in those things, there's so much wasted opportunity there. When somebody offer, offers some new information to you, do you ever get, do you ever feel that hesitation somewhere inside of like, oh, I already know what I'm doing? Um, if you'd have asked me that 20 years ago, yeah. I would have said, yeah, absolutely. If you ask me that today, it's like, no way. Uh, you know, it's just, I, I love the You're fact that people are wanting to share, you know, uh, there needs to be more of that in our industry. We need those connections. We need those ability for people to, to share what they know. That's why programs like Growing Chefs work so well. The, the lady that founded that really understood that concept. There is a wealth of information siloed away in back of house kitchens all over Vancouver. Let's get them out in a classroom and sharing that information. And where do you go to get the best curry turnips, uh, you know, for your salad? Where do you get those cool seeds to grow some dragon tongue beans? They're, all that information's out there. What does a dragon bean or a dragon tongue bean look the, like? They are the purple and yellow ones. And then when you cook them, the purple starts to fade out of it and it becomes basically like a dark yellow bean. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, they're definitely a, a starchier bean than say a green bean or a yellow bean. Um, but yeah, you know, just, they look really cool. Do you have a favorite cuisine to cook? Um, depends on the day. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, I mean, I'm fascinated by, um, all of the Asian cuisines I and mean, there's so many of them. Uh, I mean, you go two, two hours away from where you just were and it's a whole different cuisine. Million percent. And, um. Have you so, been to Asia? So uh, I have not. Um, that is my my dream destination to go for sure. And we're putting petties away slowly but surely to be able to get there. Um, but just to be able to see, uh, you know, how connected they are to their food. Uh, whereas it's something for me, I had to learn to get connected to my food. Mm -hmm. Because I grew up in an industry where it was big suppliers, big manufacturers, and everything showed up on the back of one truck. Being in Japan was really interesting because like the shops there, they're small and they, and they only do like one thing, but they like crush it. Yeah. So if you want to have a couple of different things, you might have to go to two or three spots, but they're probably all close to each other Yeah. and they all crush. So cool. It, it was, it. it was really cool that the bars really stood out to me, just how small they are. And like, it's almost like each little bar is its own community Yeah. because you have the bartender there and then certain people that will be, uh, I guess, I don't know incongruence with that bartender they'll sort of uh grow that community around the personality there absolutely and then you can go in and experience all these little different communities and it was pretty wild to see it's very different i think there's and i, th I think there's definitely lessons to learn there about how we can adapt and change given the current environment that we're operating in smaller loca lo locations more of them um lower staffing levels and it really becomes based on not just what you're cooking, but your personality as well. The vibe that you create in your environment, you know, becomes just as critical as the food that you're serving. I'm wondering how the rent could become lower though. 
So I think the way to do that is to look at subdividing uh, existing larger spaces. Mm. So if somebody's already on on the hook for a lease in a you know a two thousand square foot place that's got a, a good kitchen in the back and you know, has basically all the stuff that you're gonna need, how easy would it be to divide the dining room up into three different sections? That's each a different different cuisine. You've got the the centralized kitchen in the back, so it's efficient. Um, the staff have an opportunity to learn all new cuisines and new styles of cooking and all those kinds of things. Um, it just becomes a really exciting project where maybe it's just me and my team that are doing three different concepts in one dining room, or maybe it's three individual businesses that are sharing that opportunity. The only place I can think of that really happening right now is Fo Halong. Yep, which is at little in the little Thai place in Royal Oak, and there's a Vietnamese restaurant in there. Yes, where the owners used to own Saigon Night, and that's what they have. They have two different sets of um, chefs in the kitchen, yeah. making two different cuisines. Yep. So now, when someone goes in there, you now have a choice: do you want Thai food or do you want Vietnamese food? Like, which which Brilliant. one do you want? Brilliant. I personally like it because you can get like a Thai iced tea, but then I can get some pho. Yeah, exactly. And you can get both of them in the same place. Yeah. <laughs> It's so cool. And I, and I really see the, the um, things like um, food halls, but smaller scale, right? So that we can adapt to changing. This whole pandemic thing that we're in is not going away. We are adapting and being led down a path where we are learning to adapt and cope with it on an ongoing basis. And, you know, next year, two years from now, three years from now, what's going to be the next one? You know, um, so as an industry, we need to look at not just what can I do to keep dollars coming in and and our doors open today, but what's it going to look like for me next summer? I still don't think there's going to be any big events. I hope I'm wrong. But we've learned this year, we don't need big events. We actually are better off with our truck, and I can't speak for everybody, because there's some trucks that thrive, absolutely thrive in big event situations. But for us, we probably won't do big events anymore, even if we had the opportunity to do it. There would be a couple that we do just because we've developed those personal relationships with the organizers, and they're just so much fun to be at. But the work level when you're doing absolutely everything from scratch to produce that much food in a short period of time becomes overwhelming. So we are financially further ahead by sticking to doing the markets and the smaller events. It, it's a better fit for us. We were trying to force ourselves into something that maybe wasn't the best fit for us because that's what food trucks do, right? Food trucks go to big events. Of course. Right. Okay, well, we've discovered this year that that's not for us. I love the self-awareness. Yeah. And it's it's it was a real that was that's probably the biggest eye opener we've had this year. Really? Yeah, for sure. It's just going, hey, you know, for the last 3 years, we weren't necessarily doing ourselves any favors. I mean, sure you generate a large amount of money, but you spend a bigger amount of money to make it. So, pers- well, there was one thing that stood out, one event that I saw you guys at, and it was like it was a big event. And it just, it really, there was a bunch of stuff that happened, I think that morning that made it really difficult and it just really didn't work. Yeah. And like, you didn't look like you were having any fun that day. No. Nope. Like it, you, you weren't happy. No. Nope. 
And, and so it's, it's amazing to hear you now say this and like this year is really nailed at home that maybe that's not for you guys. Exactly. And that part of that is just the fit of our business. And part of it is what we want out of our business is evolving as well. You know, we want, we want more work-life balance. It's been mostly work with a little bit of life balance. (laughs) And this year it's been way more in balance for our family. Even though it's just you two working. Yeah. And so you're, and you're still making a go of it. Yeah, you bet. I I am concerned this year for how many places are going to unfortunately end up having to close because I think, unfortunately, there's going to be quite a number. I, I have to agree with you, Dallas. And 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 I, I I hate saying that it it pains my heart to no end because I know the amount of effort and time and money that these people have put into their businesses. COVID is so insane. And to see people have to walk away from that is it's crushing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been through that experience myself. I, I lost my shirt on my first restaurant and it was heartbreaking to walk away from that after a year and a half. And this year it's at nobody's fault. No, exactly. They didn't do anything wrong. No. And you know, we, we, everybody from, you know, the federal and provincial governments down to the individual business owners, we're all figuring it out as we go. Yeah. There isn't a roadmap or a game plan for this one. You know, there isn't a proven way to do it that's going to allow you to continue to succeed while still being able to play within the rules. You know, we look at just last week, we were we were raked back a little bit again. You know, bars need to be, all nightclubs are shut down. That was a huge down. blow. All banquet halls are shut down. That happened four days after we did the one wedding we did at a banquet hall. That entire wedding would have been changed dramatically. Wow. Uh, after already having to change it, they were supposed to get married in May, which we were going to do. It was going to be 120 people. Now it was down to 50 people and, you know, much, much changed event for them. So again, ties into that, you know, what are we doing beyond today? And I think that it really nails home that you have to support local. You bet. Like I, I, I really hope that nobody has to close. I sincerely hope that. Um, but it, it's important that everyone, if you, if you like a place, please go out and eat there and, and support people. Absolutely. And, yeah. not, and not just food, but any business locally. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any local business that is, has got a shingle out and, and is doing their best to survive in the, in this current situation, you know, like, like for example, for me, like I love the copper hat. I don't know if you've been there. I, that's where I get all my supplies from. Really? Yeah, you bet. Awesome. Amazing people. I, I love them so much. And like, it's like the, the razors that I get from there, I could get cheaper elsewhere. Yep. But I, I, I would never do that. No. I'm like, they need to exist. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's, I just, that's so important. Absolutely. And you know, it's, and it's people like you that have, that will help steer our industry through the next little while and into the future of what it's going to look like for people. Because you talk to everybody, you, you get so many different valid perspectives, you get the opportunity to try things out and showcase what people are doing, you know, and I have to, I have to be honest when I, when I first got into the whole food truck thing, which is a live or die by social media kind of business, I was a little skeptical about not you specifically, but people that are, are influencer i hate the term but influencers in in the social media game you do it to such a different level uh, you have that 
that human side to it. It's not all about likes and it's not all about, oh, I can promote this product and I can get these perks and I can do all this and that. You're trying, you forge genuine connections. Thank you. And that's what's going to lead us out of this is being, again, being able to access that information and, and being able to talk to the people that are seeing success. And that's why I think these chats are so important. I, I couldn't agree more. Because now. like when, when you guys are crushing and you're busy in a, at an event, like you, you don't have time to sit here and like we're at an hour and a half right now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You can't talk, talk to somebody for an hour and a half. No. That you was know? one cool thing that happened for us when COVID first started happening and we were, we were slinging balls out of our driveway. Um, yeah. <laughs> quick shout out to the city of Colwood. Thank you very much for being so not looking in our direction, even though they followed all our, 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 all our posts. So they were well aware of what we were doing. So I can't say thank you enough, but we had the time to talk to our customers. They'd come up, they'd park in our driveway. We'd be, you know, six, eight, 10 feet apart. And talking about, you know, how are things treating you? What's going on? We got to know about people's kids. We got to know about what they do for a living. We got, you know, oh, we didn't realize that we're basically neighbors. <laughs> you know, we had all of those experiences when it, when all of this first kind of came to be. And that was a really fantastic experience for me. I think you guys were the first uh, place that I ate out from after yeah. the COVID shutdown hit. Yeah. I think you guys were the very, very, very first place. Food trucks are fortunate in that we have that built-in spacing and and basically all of the requirements um, from the various levels of health authorities. We can achieve that quite easily with very little modification to what we're doing. You know, and so that's been a bonus for us in that we can adapt. You know, and we know if we're going to this market and they have this set of guidelines to operate in, we're bringing pylons and we're bringing ropes and we're bringing tiles to put down on the ground to keep everybody six feet apart. And then we're going to do another event and there isn't that requirement. We're always going to manage our crowds appropriately. We're not going to let people gather in a huge huddle in front of our truck. If I got to jump off the truck and say, okay, you guys that are waiting for your food, I need you over there. You guys that need to order, I need you over there. And you folks that are, you know, just kind of milling around, you need to go back over there. I have no problem doing that because I want to be able to open tomorrow and I want all those people to be able to come and see me tomorrow. Exactly. Right? So we all have a responsibility and a, and a role to play in all of this. Whether you're a customer supporting a local business to help them stay alive and keep their doors open and their lights on, or whether you're a, a business owner, restaurateur, whatever part of uh, any industry that you're in, you have that responsibility to educate, not just only your staff, but the people that are utilizing your business. And back then when, when COVID first hit, you were doing delivery or getting delivery done. You bet. And, um, I, I personally never try and do delivery. I always want to go eat like when it's still hot at the place, Yeah, but you were doing that and you guys are not doing that now, right? We are not. Um, Part of it, to be quite honest, was just, oh my God, I don't know what we're going to do. So let's do what everybody else is doing and jump on delivery services. So fortunately, there's a great local company in Victoria called TD Delivery. Um, They have the most reasonable rates out of anybody. They only charge 15%. uh, And that is their always rate. It's not just discounted because it's COVID. Um, A lot of the bigger players, so DoorDash, Skip, Uber, and all that, offered incentives to get people online. Your first 30 days or no fees to the restaurateur, um, free delivery for orders over $30 or whatever the case may be. They definitely stepped up to the plate 
And they definitely helped a lot of businesses through that first initial hurdle. And kudos to them for doing it. Of course. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, it's a business model that's not sustainable. I don't believe, I could be wrong, but I don't believe that any of those companies are actually financially stable. I don't think any of them have really turned any profit. Uh, Yes, they produce big numbers, but they're not profitable. The only reason they're all still in business is because they go to the public sector and they, you know, release, uh, do a share sale. Because what's the percentage on like one of the big companies? One of the big companies, you're looking at anywhere between 25 and 30%. The ones that tend to be around 25% also slap on a $1 fee for processing the payment cards, whether it's debit, credit, whatever. So then the restaurateur. So you just lost 30% off the top. So for right us, there. for us, it literally means for every $10 in sales that we do, yeah. we have to give away $3 of it. So we don't have that high of a profit margin there. It costs us. We subsidize the deliveries. It certainly helped us and it kept enough dollars coming in that we're still here today. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful for that. I think overall, the current model that is being utilized is very parasitic. Um, and a lot of restaurateurs in this given situation of COVID feel like they don't have any other any other choice because if they don't start doing deliveries, the people aren't showing up at your door. So how do you, how do you, you have to do it. You feel, I felt like I had to do it. I hated it. But I was also very lucky that, you know, we had the introductory rates and all of those kinds of things. When the introductory period was over and all of those things started going on, preemptively, we started running a competition. Food truck house party for 10 people. If you come and pick up yourself and order through us online, you can still get it delivered. You're just not getting an entry into the draw. We went from 80% delivery, 20% pickup to 80% pickup, 20% delivery. That's when we knew we were onto something. We have a kitchen that can move. We can put it anywhere that we want within reason. That's a whole other story to get into. About. I would love it if you could just park anywhere you wanted. I know, right? Me that too. would be so amazing. If like, let's, let's just say that you and a couple of your friends, you know, you get deadbeats or whatever. Yep. And you're like, Hey, let's just go here today. Yep. And you get like four or five in a row parked somewhere. Yep. That would be so incredible. Now through work that, um, Mo Blake has been doing with the Vic Hospitality Group and uh, Counselor Jerry Loveday. Um, They've just reached out to the hospitality industry to say, okay, we're now moving into our fall winter season. What can the city of Victoria offer to restaurants, food trucks, the hospitality industry in general to help out? Hmm. So my suggestion was, wouldn't it be awesome if we could use something like the parking lot at Royal Athletic Park to do a drive through food truck setup? Right? You can have four or five trucks there. We all have online ordering now, all of us, when none of us did before. That was a whole learning curve to this technical um, <laughs> newbie. Um, but everything's so easy to do. I managed to fumble through it. We have a functioning website. So, hey, it's all good. But we, you did the website? Yeah. Did it all Good ourselves. Yeah. Good for you. You know, there we didn't have the capital to pay somebody to do it, you know? Um, so being able to say, you know, there's a great big, huge set of parking lots there. Wouldn't it be cool to have four or five trucks that you could basically drive in, 
pull up, grab your food and go? Or how about doing it more like a drive-in? Have people utilizing the parking spots. They don't need to get out of the vehicles. And wouldn't it be fun to have if a little RV remote control car, truck, trailer pulled the food up to your door of your car? I mean, I would have to hire somebody to drive it, I guess, but <laughs> that would be kind of fun. You know what? There's just those, all those little creative pieces that you can have. That'd be such a with. different experience. I think people would be all over that. Right. It's kind of like the old A&W car hop concept, except for today, you know? And so there's just so many different cool little things that we could try. And, and this winter, I think we're going to have the time to do it. Um, Cause what you guys don't go year round, do you? I think this year we're going to try. Yeah. Uh, I think what we may end up doing is posting up at our commissary kitchen in a squamalt, uh, just because it accesses a bigger delivery area, mm-hmm. higher density of people. Um, and what we're looking at doing is there's another small startup company there called Consalsa. Great, great two kids. It's a, it's a couple. They're doing some really amazing Mexican cuisine. Um, we could maybe share a delivery driver. Mm. that we pay for instead of utilizing one of the big companies. Um, maybe that delivery driver, if it's a, if it's a slow night could be a prep person as well. You know, there's lots of ways we can utilize people's skills and talents. We just need to kind of get out of our comfort zones a little bit and look at how we can break up the labor so that everybody has something to do and is earning a paycheck. Again, it's breaking out of the comfort zone Yeah, you bet. and just being open to that and what the possibilities that that might bring. Absolutely. You know, and if, if, they're not interested in sharing with us and we got to foot the bill ourselves. Then, okay. We look at how we can just adapt to make that work and make sense for everybody. Yeah. You know, yeah, the uh, margins are so small with restaurants. It's like, it's razor I thin. I don't know if people really realize how small they are. Average in Canada right now is three to 5%. Yeah. That's gross profit. That's absolutely uh, nuts. And it, when I, when I see like a post on Facebook about somebody did like a dine and dash yeah. and they didn't pay for their food. Like that just erased tables and tables of other you betcha. places that actually are other uh, people that stopped by. You bet. You bet. It's so, so bad. When the, it hasn't been since the early to mid eighties that restaurants have been anywhere in near double digit profit margins. I, when this all happened and we were having those really tough conversations about, you know, this is an opportunity for the restaurant industry to reinvent itself, to make it so that it's, livable work hours and a fair wage and all of those kinds of things. And lots of them have stepped up to the plate and done that. But my question, and I was just asking it as a, basically as a conversation starter, do we want to go through this whole process that we're going to have to go through for the next year or whatever it's going to look like to go back to three to 5%? Is it worth it? Or can we charge what our food is worth, including the labor and not have it subsidized so that we can look at 15%. I think that's fair. I mean, I know a lot of companies wouldn't exist if all they're going to get back on their money is 15%. As a restaurateur, I would be thrilled with 15%. With three to five times what you'd get now. Yeah. That's like, that just is, blows my mind. Yeah. So, you know, when you see these, you see these restaurants that are struggling and, and, you know, a lot of these places are a week or two slow weeks away from their doors being closed. And that's, you know, they don't even have a buffer for one month's contingency of rent and overhead. 
They don't have it. What if someone in your place, like your chef, if they, they got sick and they had to self-isolate for a couple of weeks? That could be the couple of weeks right there if you exactly. weren't open. I mean, for us, and that's what was so We have an eight-year-old and he's back to school. Um, that's what's so scary for us is that we don't have the option to self-isolate in our house. We don't have a separate bathroom that has everything that uh, somebody with COVID would need so that they could self-isolate away from our family. Mm -hmm. So if anyone in our family gets sick, there goes our business for two weeks. That's scary. That is scary as hell, right? Because that two weeks of zero income could tank our business. You know, yeah. I mean, and it's and no fault willing, of your own. And I am not willing to risk the confidence in that the public has in us to deliver a self uh, a, a healthy and safe food experience. I'm not willing to risk that. Mm -hmm. So if we get shut down, it's like okay, we're that's it. We're done for two weeks. And do you think, like, with the industry, is there anything you think that could be done, sort of? immediately that could sort of help things? I think the biggest thing that our industry needs to see is that sick, sick time is a legitimate thing. Uh, and there needs to be supports in place, whether it's with government assistance or if it's groups of restaurateurs that pool knowledge and, and, and basically finances together to be able to provide paid sick days. People should not have to go to work if, they are if they're ill. Right. I mean, it's, there's a little bit of difference between the self employed, self in, incurred 24 hour flu because you were out tying one on last night. You know what? Suck it up, princess. Go back to work. If you have your chef who needs to isolate, he shouldn't have to worry about putting his food or she shouldn't have to worry about putting food on their table because they're sick. So that's why they go to work. Yeah. You know, could we get to a place where, there's the equivalent of two weeks paid sick time available. Sure, we could. It's going to need require help from the governments, both federal and provincial. It's going to require help from restaurant associations, bar associations, manufacturing associations, unions. We're all going to have to get to the table and say, okay, this is what we need. And this is how we can do it. So you'd mentioned about the ICC, the Island Chefs uh, Collaborative. Yes. And are you, you're still a part of that, are you? Are Absolutely. You? I'm a board member with the Island Chefs Collaborative. Um, I did a stint as the president. Um, and what an amazing group of people. Uh, it's not just chefs. Uh, it's hospitality people in general. Uh, front of house, back of house, uh, wine reps, you name it. There's people that are involved. And what is the ICC for people that don't know? So the Island Chefs Collaborative main mission is to support and increase local food production here on Vancouver Island. That is it in a nutshell. We want to see more of what we're doing so well here. Um, we want to encourage uh, other businesses to start utilizing local products. We want to make sure that there's farmland available for our farmers. We want to make sure that there's markets accessible for people to sell their, their goods all of those different pieces. The ICC has gone through many evolutions. How long has it been around? I think we're looking at probably 16 or 17 years. I don't honestly have a firm answer for you on that. Uh, I know I've been involved for nine. Um, and there's, 
when it first started up, uh, it was literally chefs going out to local farms, grabbing their produce and going to Bastion Square and setting up a farmer's market. That's how it all got started. Because, and it was, it was, some of it was self-interest. Those chefs wanted to make sure that those ingredients were always going to be available for them. Again, it goes back though, support the people that you want to stick around. Right. It makes sense. It totally makes sense. So that evolved into um, bigger events like um, Feast of Fields and Defending Your Backyard uh, out at Fort Rod Hill, where again, all these chefs are volunteering their time and and utilizing local ingredients to provide amazing little food samples. I've never heard of that one. It was, I think the last one was 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I've never been to Feast of Fields, but I've, I really, that's one that I've always wanted to go to. It's an amazing experience. They're, they're on different local farms. Um, each year, they tend to alternate between South Island and uh, Cent- Central Island. Um, so they move back and, back and forth. Um, there's the one in Vancouver, and then there's also one in the Okanagan as well. So it's grown quite a lot as well. And ICC has always been involved in that. So what does the ICC do? To promote local businesses and promote local food production, we do fundraisers in order to provide us with funds to um, administer and and operate the microloans program. So if you're a producer looking to expand your production capacity, let's say you need a specific piece of equipment, a walk-behind tractor in order to be able to till more ground, and that tractor is going to cost you $15,000. You can apply to the microloans program, which is run by three different um, organizations. The ICC, Farm Folk City Folk, which do Feast of Fields and lots of other really important uh, local food work over in Vancouver, and Van City, the bank. So they're the ones that provide the money. They are also the ones that have the final say on whether the loan is approved or not. We have somebody on the ICC and that is their sole job. So you apply as a producer. This person is going to go out to your farm, take a look at it, look at your proposal, look at your financials, look at your business plan and what you're going to do with it. It's one thing to say, oh, I need a tractor in order to be able to till more land. Well, what are you going to grow in that land? What are you going to produce with that? Uh, how is it going to increase food production on the island? As a board, the ICC vets the application. We stamp it. It then goes off to uh, Farm Folk, City Folk, and Van City for final authorization. The You as the producer receive your funds. You have a specific time frame in which you can pay it off with, sort of anywhere between two to five years. Um, once you're done paying it off, the ICC will come to you and give you a check for any interest you paid on that. So you basically got an interest-free loan Wow! in order to be able to increase that. So we do, we do fundraisers to raise for that. And then we also do fundraisers to raise money to keep the growing chefs program moving along. And again, yeah, growing chefs is a part or is, is comes out of the ICC. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. It's basically has been, um, with the help of everybody on the ICC, um, I've been given the opportunity to spearhead it and, and move it forward. I did actually, before uh, COVID started, so de- December of last year, um, decided I was going to take a step back from the coordinator role. Um, again, realizing that I was getting too burnt out. And not enjoying so much the managing everybody else and really missing being in the classroom with the kids. Mm. Had a whole succession plan done. That all happened effectively. And then COVID hit. So 
growing chefs is on pause right now. But all the all the people are in place and anxious to get back to it as soon as they can. I, we were we were in seven different classrooms, four different schools, uh, forty plus volunteers, um, and all just done so amazingly well because of the program that was put together uh, for the growing chefs program. That's so encouraging just to hear those numbers. Yeah, you bet. And and what I'm seeing different people doing around Victoria and the island with as far as growing food here. And trying to trying to um, get rid of get rid rid of food deserts. Yeah, have have locally grown food accessible to anyone that is willing to um, sort of put the work in and grow some stuff. It's definitely the information's a, out there. Yeah, it's definitely not a free ride. It's definitely a lot of work. Yeah. I have the maddest respect for people that farm as a profession, and I have crazy respect for anybody that is growing a, a garden in their backyard, whether it's a couple of containers. Or whether they've turned their whole backyard into a garden oasis. Um, so like the, the like, like the food eco district I know has been supplying gardens to people. Yeah. And my friends uh, Ariel and uh, Jessica, they were they were supplying uh, burlap sack gardens to people. Wicked. So you could grow in the space of a burlap sack. Like that's not a very big footprint of space, no. and you could grow a whole bunch of stuff in this thing. You bet. And and it's just it's really encouraging to see what's going on. You know, it's always it's always been. One of those questions I can remember thinking about as a young kid, like, why do we spend so much time and effort on growing grass when it could be food, it could be flowers, it could be natural vegetation that's local to that area? Why grass? I get it. It looks pretty, but really, is that the only reason that we, you know, water it incessantly and dump a bunch of chemicals on it to make it thick and green and you know i've never thought about this like what if everyone's front yard was just vegetables right i've never thought about that we wouldn't have the food chain uh food supply chain clusterfuck that we had when when covid first hit right you couldn't get beef for love nor money you couldn't get certain vegetables you couldn't get a lot of things i've never in my life walked into a grocery store and seen empty shelves like that it was that was cr- freaky well it was it was it kind of felt like this apocalyptic thing because the very the very first um time that i really went out to a grocery store after everything was sort of getting hit and the lockdowns were sort of coming yeah and i heard that the next day a rumor that oh the, the stuff's going to be shut down so i went to the um the wholesale club yep uh, the that the morning the next day and and i saw a couple of people that own some restaurants when i was walking the door a couple guys i know yeah and it was just the look of despair on their face and then going in and seeing all the shelves empty in there it yeah. was it was the weirdest thing the crazy yeah absolutely i i mean and i come from a place of white privilege you know i've never worried about a meal on my table me as well yeah uh, growing up and to see that as an adult is really unnerving, you know, because we just think it's ever, never exhaustible. It will always be there. Well, we learned that it's not. I think uh, in North America, we certainly live, not all of us, but um, those that are privileged or the, those of us that are privileged, we live as if everything's infinite. Yeah. yeah. Like electricity, you know, gas it's in your car. It's finite. Yeah. And that was that was another one of those epiphany moments that I had this year. This year's been really good for that. <laughs> you know, self-realization and and just awareness of how I fit into the society that's around me and and the impact and changes that I can do for myself and hopefully demonstrate to other people that, you know, they need to invest that time and energy to do the same thing. 
So has, has this year really impacted you like on a human being level then? Uh, more than I can ever remember. Um, connections made, connections lost. Really became apparent to me, um, well, to both Shannon and myself, um, what, in, what connections are important and why they're important. And not all of it has to do with business. And, you know, some people that I've counted as friends for a long, long time kind of didn't make the cut this time because it's so much of an energy drain or they're just neither of us put the effort in anymore, you know? So let's just let that go and be okay with it. And let's focus on the relationships that are important to us. You know, I'm, I'm sure everybody's realized how important that close group of people in your life that are your family, whether they're blood relatives or not, mm-hmm. right? How important those people are. Yeah, the people that are in your bubble. You bet. And that's that's a really powerful place to be. I've really, really focused on trying to surround myself with only people that have my back. Yeah. Like a, like 150%. Yeah. I know that they're, they're if somebody's at like 80%, then I just don't have the time, unfortunately. I just, I can't. Yeah. Because I, I, I need to surround myself by people that I feel like have me, I have my back 150% because I have that in return. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a, that's a comforting place to be, you know? Um, and it's certainly not the, the massive, huge amount of people I thought it was that I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's way smaller than I've I only got a few. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I think that again, it's, it's, it's that rejigging of society and, and the realization that man, I got it really good. I am so fortunate. Uh, I have a healthy family. I have a nice place to live. I have a food truck that's fun. I have, I just, I have, I have, I have. Mm-hmm. And it really opened my eyes to the people that don't or were that close to not having. And then COVID hit and they don't have anymore. Yeah. You know, Um and of course, all the it all gets politicized, which is really unfortunate because no change comes out of that. It's just he said, she said, and everybody gets pissed off. At least that's what it feels like to me these days. <clears throat> Where the real change is coming in is the people that are having those eye-opening experiences and those epiphanies and then doing something about it. You know, all the amazing restaurants and, and, and that, that fed our frontline workers when COVID first started. Mm-hmm. They weren't getting paid for that. That was out of their own pocket, not knowing if their restaurant was going to be open tomorrow, but realizing these people need to get fed. There's a place I would love to shout out right now that I know did that, but I think he would be very upset if I did. Fair enough. And, and again, so like like that's that scenario right there. Someone that I I I know what he did. Yeah. And and the fact that he'd be upset if I shared it. Like yeah, because they're not looking for the recognition. That's not why they're doing it. No, and it's just the people that are in that mode, that mindset. It just, I, I, I really value that there's people like that in the community in the in the city. We're fortunate that we have people that that operate like that. Yeah, that have those core values, and we would all do well to learn a little bit from that. One hundred percent. At the end of the day, we're all human beings. Doesn't matter where you come from, what your skin color is, what your background is what your future looks like. We're all human beings and we all, we're all in this together. And man, there's just so many opportunities to create and, and do positive things. And it doesn't have to be earth changing today. 
one positive step each day, one little tiny change incrementally over a period of time. Dude, it's planting the seed. You bet. You <laughs> bet. It's a, I, it's so easy for me to do those food analogies, right? Cause it, it is my life. It is what I have done my whole entire life. I mean, going on just about 38 years now and wow, what an amazing opportunity, you know, and being connected to the education side of, of our, industry as well has been such a positive experience. I love teaching. I love that part of it, passing on knowledge. And then at the same time, learning from the people that are learning from you, um, being able to share skills, to be able to build other people up. You know, when we had, um, again, HeroWorks, we've been involved with them for three and a half, almost four years now. And you know, we were, we were presented an award from them and all of these things. And, and they're, they're always, you know, wanting to try and provide for us. Well, that's not why we're doing it. Right. When, when you're teaching someone, how much more does that, do you learn about a topic when you have to teach it to someone? Oh, you can't even measure the difference being the student or being the teacher. You learn easily twice as much as your student learns easily. I got thrust into a really unique situation when I was living up in Fort St. John. I was teaching the cook training program to high school students at the high school. These are students that the school didn't know what else to do with. They weren't succeeding academically. They're having challenges, whether it's in their personal lives, just showing up for school. And then it's like, okay, let's throw them into this provincially mandated program where pass is not a 50%, pass is a 70%. You can afford to miss a grand total of three days for the entire semester, or you have to make up time because you have to achieve a certain amount of hours. 30% of your final grade is written assignments and tests. These are students that don't even know how to take a test. These are students that didn't even know how to utilize a textbook. I was very fortunate that I was connected with the right people because I asked questions. Okay, these guys don't even know how to use a textbook. How do I teach that to them? Mm-hmm. Because I just inherently know doesn't mean I know how to teach it. I taught the entire cook training program to the student support uh, principal in in the district up there, the whole cook training program in about two weeks. And between the two of us, we put a lot of time and effort in teaching how to kids kids how to learn collaboratively, how to teach one another collaboratively. Every last one of those 13 kids that I had in my very first class I ever taught in the public school system graduated high school. Not just graduated our program, graduated high school. What a change it has made in those kids' lives. That's amazing. I'm still in touch with a large percentage of them today. I know when they're getting married. I know when they're having kids. I know when they're moving from one place to another. I know when you know they're having family struggles. I know... I know all of that because we stay in touch. We've made those connections. We have, and I changed the culture up there. I changed the education culture in that specific school. It was back when cell phones were becoming a big issue and teachers were banning them in classrooms. I took a totally different approach. I did a little experiment. I went to the local farmer's market. I'm standing in the parking lot. It's on a Saturday. It's not even a school day. And I sent a text out to all my students. I said, hey, there's some cool stuff. There's a cool couple of cool new products here at the, 
at the farmer's market that I want to show you guys. We're going to grab a few things to do a, a little local demonstration on Monday. Sent it out via group text. Out of the 13 kids in my class, 22 students showed up. So they brought some of their friends. Three of the students that were in my class texted back and said, chef, I'm out of town. I can't make it. They felt bad mm. because we had that rapport. So we turned things upside down and proved that, hey, you know what? They're a tool that we can utilize, that kids understand, that they can use to access information that they need, that they can take photographs of the food they've created to create memories that they can share, to show their parents you know, that they're, they're proud of the work that they've done. We can create a slideshow at the end of the year to show where they started at, what their first cuts on a carrot or an onion look like to what they're producing by the end of the semester, you know? And it was, it was a huge fight just to get that one little thing changed. We had teachers and, and administration coming into the classroom going, what are you doing allowing kids, you know, cell phones? So like, I don't know. It works for them and it works for me. How could that be wrong? So we kind of upended the whole, let's just shove kids somewhere because we don't know what else to do with them. And let's turn it into a program that kids are proud to, of their accomplishments. Let's turn it into somewhere that builds them up and turns them into somebody that's excited about coming to school. That's going to be a, a good global citizen. You know, those are all responsibilities that fall on any teacher in any classroom anywhere. So if we can make it easier for everybody to get involved, if we can make it so that they're encouraged and enthusiastic about it, it's a win-win situation, you know? And it's those little pieces that I've picked up going along. It's so like when you sent that group text, did you just, did it pop in your mind at the, the sell that second? Well, I wanted to be able to show the administration at the school that cell phones have a place in classrooms, hmm. especially in my classroom, right? It's a tool that we can utilize. So that response that you got, by the way, like how much notice did you give? Do you just kind of say like, show up now? Yeah, I'm here. If you can make it, come on down. Okay. This is what we're doing. Within 20 minutes, there was 22 kids of me standing in that parking lot. And some of them weren't even in my program. That's crazy. Amazing. So cool. The farmers were all thrilled because they got to talk to, to young people that were interested in what they're doing and wanted to know about the products that they were growing. And... So, like I said, everybody gained a positive experience out of that. Is it going to work in all classrooms? No, it's not. But there are reasons to bend the rules and break the rules and challenge the the norms. You know, we're not going to, if we don't get out of, again, it comes back to getting out of your comfort zone, right? We really pushed that school district out of their comfort zone. And it worked. It just as easily might not have worked, but we wouldn't have known until we tried well, it sounds like you did it in a way where you could kind of show them like safely without taking a huge risk. Yeah. Just, just like, here's an example. Look, yep. look at the response here. Exactly. You know, and the, it's, it's, it's those kind of ideas that make entrepreneurs, especially in the restaurant industry, such a dynamic and interesting group of people mm -hmm. because they are out of the box thinkers, because they think in a multitude of different directions at once, not just, you know, in a, in a single line. And the ideas might not make sense to other people. Right. That might not even make sense to us initially. You know, you're looking at it and it's like, eh, what do I do with this now? It's kind of cool. I'm not really sure what I need to do with it. Maybe it's not for me. Maybe it's for me to share with somebody else, you know, and that's okay too. 
there's so much knowledge and, and talent out there. It's crazy that it gets locked away into little silos. 100%. Yeah. Random question. Yes. What's a barbecue on a glacier? <laughs> what is a barbecue on a glacier? You got to tell me. Barbecue on a glacier. What? How are you involved with this? What does so, that even mean? Okay, so... Really, really. I caught you off guard with that, didn't I? You did. You really did. So amazing opportunity that I had. Uh, I was living in Saskatoon at the time. Uh, was talking to a friend of mine who worked for a uh, heli skiing, heli hiking outfit that operates um, all over BC. He and his wife had just had a baby, so he was taking mat leave with the sum- off for the summer to be with his wife and his new child. He asked if it would be okay if I came in to work the summer shift for him. Uh, and it all got approved and we, we got that all done. So the way it worked is the guests would come in to our lodge for three and a half days. The half day was kind of the, when they first arrived and when they were first leaving, kind of split equally between the two and three full days of every morning they're up breakfast and out hiking on, you know, eight, nine, 10,000 mount, foot mountain peaks all guided, all shuttled around in helicopters, all big money, all just such a cool experience. So on the third day, third full day that people were there, the hel- the helicopters would take the people out to where they were going to hike for the morning, the guides and the guests. They would come back to the lodge, get me and a barbecue and coolers full of food and fly me up to this glacier. The, f- the rock that we got to land on was probably about the footprint of both sides of this duplex, okay? And this is a, in the middle of a glacier. So they'd land me, I'd set up the barbecue, get all the food going, have beverages all ready for people, then they'd start going to collect the guests and bringing the groups back down onto the glacier to be fed lunch. Kind of just a cool way to wrap up their their three-day amazing adventure, right? Then lunch would be over, the guests would get shuttled out to where they were going to hike for their afternoon. The helicopter would, one of the helicopters would come back and pick me and all the gear up. We would fly to the edge of the glacier and literally just drop down to the river at the bottom of the glacier and then fly all our way back to the lodge. That was how I spent one entire summer. Wow. Every three days flying in helicopters. It was actually, it was, it was the year I turned 30. I spent my 30th birthday up on a mountain peak with one guest and one of the guides um, back in the day before you could do panoramic photographs. I was still shooting film camera, right? I have photos of just all you can see is blue sky. So bright, it hurts your eyes and mountain peaks as far as the eye can see. And that's how I spent my 30th birthday. One of the guys came in and said, uh, the helicopter is waiting for you. I said, that's no, they're not usually here till 1030. He goes, no, they're waiting for you. I've got the kitchen today go celebrate your birthday and have fun. So that's how that whole summer happened. It was just an amazing time and an amazing experience, just right place, right time and being willing to take the risk on a new opportunity. I love it. Yeah. So cool. Dude, is there anything we haven't touched on today? You know what? We have covered a huge amount of ground. This is before this started. I I knew it was going to be a good talk. Yeah. This has been amazing. I, and I cannot thank you enough, Dallas. You know, we, we, I, I just enjoy talking to you. You're, you're so attentive and you're so inquisitive and you want to know things and you want to, you want to know below just a surface level. 
you want to kind of get down to the meat and potatoes of it. And it's I, funny and I because I really appreciate that. Thank you. I didn't want to cut you off. Thank you. I, I, I don't actually like, you know, when, when, when we run into each other, just, just people in general yeah. and someone says, Oh, how you doing? Good. Oh, how you doing? Oh, good. And that's it. And I, I actually, it's funny because I don't really, I ever ask anybody how they're doing really. Yeah. Because I just want to skip past that. I, I actually do want to have like a meaningful conversation. Yeah. That's that, that to me is totally the deal. And I don't know if it's because I'm, I'm like a pretty big introvert. I, I just, I want to skip past all the, all the sort of, um, the, you know, the I, I, I kind of chuckle every time you say you're an introvert, because since I've known you, it's been in a very public role. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't seen that side of you. Um, and it's really interesting because I am the farthest thing from an introvert you're going to find. I am totally comfortable in front of a room full of people talking about whatever or doing, you know, I, I don't, I'm not concerned about what other people think as far as what they think of me. I'm trying to get there. It's, I've just, I've been very fortunate in that that was my makeup for my personality from the day I was born. I've always been that way. I can't think of a day where it made me uncomfortable to be in a situation like this. So knowing that about you now, it's just like, wow, man, that's a huge change for you because you're such a, an outgoing personality to me. You're, you're, I would never label you as an introvert unless you had told me, you know, that that's the place that you came from. Part of it for me is, is my, my history of anxiety. Sure. Cause anxiety runs in my family. Sure. And I've had very severe panic attacks in the past. Like, like, like life altering wow. end of the world. Yeah. This is like, I, my last semester at school at UVic. I missed a month of school because I had two very severe panic attacks. The first time it ever happened, I thought I was going to die. And it, 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 I was, I that yes. So it, in the shout out to Shannon, <coughs> but, um, th- this happened and, and it was really, for me, it was sort of a crossroads and I, and I started on or doing the, putting the work in to sort of get to the bottom of everything Sure. and run and run through all of that and really get to the bottom. And I mean, that was 13 years ago. It's been a lot of work, but I, I feel like I'm getting things under control. And um, well, congratulations, man, because you're killing it. Thank you. And I think that's that's maybe one thing I would like to touch on with you quickly mm-hmm. is mental health and the and the hospitality industry. Let's go for it. Um, I know people like Sean Sewell, um, the the crew at Spinnakers, uh, and numerous other amazing people in our industry are really focusing down on, on mental health in our industry. It's such, it has been historically such a, basically an abusive uh, industry to be in, uh, whether it's the amount of hours you work, the lack of pay, the lack of sleep, the easy access to alcohol, pick one, you know, there's so many things stacked up for people that are vulnerable to, to those kinds of situations. And you know, it's just a matter of really, we talked about really, you don't like to just have that very superficial, how you doing? Mm-hmm. It's not, that's not enough anymore. If you really need to know if somebody needs help, you got to take the time and invest that time in that relationship. Well, here's the thing I found. This is an unlock that I had after being with someone, again, being with someone and seeing what he did. And I picked up on it right away and I started using it just, just uh, to try and connect with people on a deeper level. And that's instead of asking someone, how are you doing? Ask them how their day's going. Yes. And when I do that, it, it was amazing when I first started doing this. I noticed that when I would ask, like if I'm buying food or some or anywhere, I'm buying something, and I talk to the cashier and I say, How's your how's your day going? 
there was some type of their eyes would smile. Yes. And they would, they almost everyone would share something meaningful with me. Yeah. It was always a meaningful. And then that would lead into something else where it always felt like when we left that interaction, both of us felt better than when we came into it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's so critical, you know, and take an, in, take an industry that's ba- was basically before COVID was highly dysfunctional at best. And then throw something like COVID into the mix where people on a personal level are just stressed to the max. That's a bad recipe for a lot of individuals for not coping well and for substance abuse and for mental health issues uh, to surface. And, and, you know, all of those old skeletons in the closet, guess when they're going to come out right about when you're just max stressed out. Right. So take that time to just connect with a person, take that time to honestly find out how they're doing. Mm -hmm. And if they're, if they all of a sudden kind of start, exposing and 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 releasing all of that pent-up stuff they got going on be that decent human being that takes the time to listen without judgment and be accepting and be acknowledging and be supportive it's a tough place to be and it's a tough thing to learn for all of us um some people are are just so gracious at it for me it's been a learned thing uh you know when covid was all first going on i was angry i felt threatened I felt all of those things and I allowed that to come out in my conversations with people. Mm. And it was through constant reminders from Shannon that, Hey, you need to shut your mouth. (laughs) You need to think before you speak. You need to not speak just on an emotional level that I've been able to scale that back and, and get better at it. Am I perfect at it? Not even close. I still got a long way to go for myself. But at the same time, I've had meaningful conversations with friends of mine that I worked with in Saskatoon and back in Toronto who just lost his business and lost his family, uh, you know, through divorce and all of those kinds of things. Being able to check in with those people and say, hey, this is a really brutal place for you to be. I get that. But know that if you need a, a phone call anytime or you need a place to travel to when it's safe to do so, obviously, but you need a place to go and just be and chill for a while. My door is always open. Right. And that we all just need that humanity. And not to just say these things, but actually mean it. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all fine. And you know, like you said, how's it going versus how's your day going today? Yeah. Just like how you're doing right now. Yeah, exactly. Those little check-ins can make a world of difference. And you know, Perfect example of a little thing that you can do to make somebody's day. I was at Parachute Ice Cream picking up some ice cream for the wedding that we just did on Saturday. They make amazing ice cream. It's super good. Super great people in there. Of course, they have social distancing going on and you have to line up outside to go in. Yeah, it's a small space. Exactly. So there was two groups in front of me, both bigger, bigger groups, you know, five or six people, families. So the first group was kind of on their way in as I pulled up to the line. It's like, okay, I want to get going. I want to go get set up. And and I asked the family that was in front of me, would it be okay if I just pop, poke my head in? Because I just need them t- to let them know to open the back door, their back delivery area, so I can load the ice cream up on my truck, right? I can't haul it out through the front of their restaurant. I can't do any of that. They said, absolutely no problem. So... 
I did my thing, got my got my ice cream going to where I needed it to be, and I left a twenty dollar bill with the cash with the the gal that was taking the orders. And I said, the next family that's coming in very graciously allowed me to jump the queue, get my stuff, and get out of the way. They reached out to me after the fact. It was their son's birthday. They were there celebrating his birthday, getting in some ice cream, and they was just like, "Thank you so much. You didn't have to do that. What a cool thing to do." And I didn't do it for the recognition. And I, you know, I didn't even expect to hear back from them. I just thought, you know what? These people, and I didn't know that they were celebrating a birthday. I wouldn't have asked if I'd have known, right? Because that kid's all excited to go get his ice cream. And he had to wait like five more minutes because I had to butt, butt in line. Yeah. But what a cool thing. Just that that little bit of human connection, you know, that paying it forward, paying it back, whatever you want to call it. And it, it's those little, it doesn't have to be grand gestures. You know, something happened with me at Sportcheck. Uh, they have this crazy VIP coupon sometimes that they give out, yep. which means that you effectively can get 50 to 70% off anything in the store. Crazy. And it has a $4,000 limit. Yep. I'm not going to buy $4,000 worth of stuff. And I had this coupon. And a couple of times when I went to the place, I, I just asked the people around me, like in line behind me, hey, do you want to use my coupon? You'll save some money. Yeah. And it like, like one of them was a family and I, they were buying a bunch of stuff. And I think they saved like 300 bucks. Nice. And like, it just did that. That felt really cool. Right. Like it made me feel so good Yeah. that I walked out and I, I, I was just so happy. Exactly. Exactly. It was, it was kind of funny because didn't even think about the transaction and we're, we're going, we're heading off to set up for the wedding and I flip open social media and there's a message on Instagram from this family saying, so cool. Thank you very much. That was an awesome thing to do. It was our son's birthday today. So of course we're going to get ice cream and parachutes are favorite. And there you were, you, you know, you, you bought, basically bought the family ice cream and I'm like, that is so awesome. What a, it made my day. Yeah. Totally made my day. Totally made their day. Everybody won. Yeah. Parachute made their ice cream sales. The family got their ice cream. I got my stuff. Everybody's happy in, in a five minute interaction. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It really doesn't take a lot. It just takes being conscious and aware of what's happening or to the people around you. You know, it's, you have your restaurant team, you have your family team. And for a lot of people in this industry, they're, they're one and the same. That, that restaurant family is their family. You know, a lot of us come from dysfunctional families at the best of times. So having that, that crazy mixed group of, of individuals in the industry and being able to connect with those people on more than a superficial level is a really powerful tool. And I, and I think it's worth all of us to invest the time in that. To end this thing, what's the biggest lesson you've learned while being in the hospitality industry? The biggest single lesson I've learned being in the hospitality industry is that in order to get, you got to give first. Whether that's your time, your money, your skills, your enthusiasm, your whatever, give it freely. It will come back to you tenfold. You want a successful business? Give of yourself. Your business will succeed. It's amazing what you do when you, when you try to think about how can I serve someone else? It just naturally happens. And then before you know it, you're busier and you know what to do with and what an awesome place to be. It's absolutely incredible. This is this this talk has been amazing. Dallas, it's been absolutely always a pleasure. Always. Absolutely. And, uh, this has been a really great connection. And I've certainly enjoyed my time with you here this evening. Thank you so much. And if people 
um, want to find out more because of what you guys do is just amazing. Like, and I, and I, when people listen to this, I'm stoked that they're going to be able to find out who you are yeah. as a human being. Thank you. Because this is, this has been like, this is a perfect showcase of that. It is. And, and what an amazing format you've put together. And, and I'm just so happy to see the realization of that goal for you. Um, because it's something that we all need. We need to be able to break out of our silos and we need to be able to share what we, what we can. I, I agree a hundred percent. And if people do want to find out more about what you and Shannon are doing, where should they go? Um, indecentrisotto.com um, certainly has all our menus, information about food truck house parties. Um, you can see some of the people that we're working with um, and then follow us on social media. If you want to need to know where we're going to be, um, the Street Food Victoria app, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. Does your Instagram feed your Facebook? You betcha. Okay. You betcha. So you go either either Instagram or Facebook, and you're going to find out where you are. Because even like at the beginning of the week, I think you do a blast on the stories. You bet. With like every day, here's where we are. Yep. Yeah, you, you do a great job. We're yeah, that would that's just uh, again, just kind of experimenting and trying it out. And hey, you know what? It's been working so far, so we're just going to keep doing it. Absolutely. And if, uh, if you've made it this far, it would be helpful or I would appreciate if, um, if you gave this thing a like or a thumbs up, subscribe or whatever you're doing on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And if you're looking for more of what I'm doing, you can go to uh, vicfoodguys.ca and uh, everything's on there. Or look up Vic Food Guys on Instagram. For sure. Ever, I can't tell you guys enough. Get on there. Get liking get following get listening there's so much amazing stories being told out there and dallas you're the man for doing it so thank you very much thank you all right brother okay i'll see all everyone listening uh next tuesday hope you all have a good week bye